Ooh, that could mean only one thing, ladies and gentlemen. What's that mean? Billy Coyne, I see you down there scared now. Don't be scared. He's bloody. Boombastics Super Duper Halloween Special 2023 coming to y'all. We're starting off with three folks making it beautiful. I got Ape It over to my right. Ape It, how you doing over there, boy? I'm here to have some fun. I'm a real party animal. Yeah. He's a real good guy. He's a real good guy. And right underneath him, we have an imposter. Somebody dressed up as the great William Coyne. Maybe an alien of some sort. Who knows these things? Or is that Billy Coyne himself? Very good. Very good. Fresh from. Fresh from. Uranus. My and Well, don't tell the folks that. That's not good. That's not good. Fresh from one man panel in Monster Expo and doing it big. And fresh from the set. Let me wipe the blood out of my eyes. Fresh from the set. Absolutely, dude. The Wicked Hollow situation. Very nice new film in the works. Starring the great Alexander Hockey's around here somewhere. Ethan Rogers. Christopher J. Long. Henry Columbert. And introducing Mike Sassadine. But it's great stuff. You know, we're, we're, we're hard at work on the new feature-length film. You know what I mean? On the South Shores of Massachusetts. We got Billy Coyne over here doing... Ooh, special effects. You know, very fantastic stuff. Uh recently just had the great Billy Whedon, you know, from Sajin Kabuki Man NYPD, Psycho Ape, Once in Future Smash, you know what I mean? Upcoming Psycho Ape 2. Uh Ape at Big Fan, the fa- his favorite movie, Psycho Ape. Big Big Fan. Love, love Psycho Ape. It just reminds me of a family get together. It's very psycho. It's very ape-like, you know? Yes. He reminds me of my uncle, ape it. Addison and Greggy over there doing it big now, doing it big. With Bill Weeds, we also had Insane Shane McCain, Horween guest from the past. Let me check. Let me get decent. Horween guest from the past, ladies and gentlemen. You know what I mean? And uh, it goes on and on and more fun's had and more fun's had. You know what I mean? Uh, but I'm just a crazy man in delirium this year on Halloween. You know what I mean? So. Well, what can we say? The Halloween, the Halloween atmosphere just brings out the animal in all of us. It does. It does. You know, Billy's been, he's, he's been on this. You've pretty much been to every Halloween thus far, I believe, Billy Coin, right? Yeah, I believe so. So we don't need to get into the crazy madness of, all your favorite movies and such. I should stop kicking this table, though. That would be beautiful. I'd even, you know, make myself happy. Uh, shout out to Buddy Butterfugo behind the boards, director extraordinaire on this Halloween. Very glamorous, like very glamorous. Buddy, buddy. Maybe, buddy, maybe Buddy will pop in uh, at some point and show his face. It'll be fantastic. You know what I mean? <laughs> So one of the things we want to get into today is, uh, one thing we want, a new thing we want to do with the Halloween special each year is, uh, we want to recommend a nice horror film for folks out there. You know what I mean? And, uh, what better way than to have somebody involved with the project itself on, on it, you know? Um, and what better show than the Halloween 2023 edition? So we're going to do that for folks today. 
Now, in 1986, a little film came out. No stranger, you know, we're no stranger to some bad, some, you know, some bad times making a film, perhaps some, some people would say, that's what I can see with my good eye and my bloody eye. You know, I think any independent filmmaker out there who's ever picked up, um, a camera that weighed more than the bag of money that was supposed to make the movie can tell you, shit, there's some serious problems you might run into, might find yourself swimming around in. You know what I mean? And, uh, Spookies is definitely, uh, a film that fits into that category, but a film that I think all horror fans just kind of love, um, for, for that and for other reasons, you know what I mean? Uh, but it's had, a, it had a rocky, turbulent little come into, which we'll probably get into. Uh, we have the great Frank Farrell joining us in a little bit. But, uh, you guys remember when Spookies came into your life? I do. Spookies came into my life very early on because the cover of the VHS is something that has always stuck out in my mind. It's a beautiful piece of artwork, and I actually have right in front of me uh, a framed original uh, theatrical poster. Um, but when it comes to the viewing experience, I really didn't discover it until, I believe, when Vinegar Syndrome put out the Blu-ray, which is a beautiful disc. And um, I am definitely someone who is a fan of their product uh, from Vinegar Syndrome. But the, the movie itself, uh, there are two amazing documentaries, which I would looking forward to talking to uh, Frank about. One is uh, the, they call the unmaking of Spookies, which is amazing learning about how this production was kind of married with another project. And it's, uh, you know, uh, some turmoil, unfortunately, was going on in the other documentaries about the producer, Michael Lee, who uh, definitely, I should say he didn't make things easy during the making of the movie, but he's a very fascinating guy. Both documentaries are phenomenal. It's called the, his is called the Vipco story, which is a pretty big company back in the day. If you remember Vipco. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to see that one sheet because uh, what a, what a great artwork, you know, oh, it's beautiful. I'll definitely pull it in when uh, Frank uh, gets in here. I think we'll get a kick out of it. He'll appreciate Alex or H eight ape, ape it. Alex ain't here. He's away on set shooting the wicked hollows. You know what I mean? Yeah. But ape um, it, how you doing over there, bub? Okay. I mean, uh, uh, going with what uh, Billy said, I mean, uh, um, the artwork uh, is definitely one of the things that drew me into uh, picking up a copy to watch. Um, and one of the things I, I remember, and I, I, I think it's the case with a lot of of us that grew up in the 80s that, um, you know, picked up films like Spookies and so forth and so on. Um, the art, uh, the cover art on a lot of the VHSs are what, what really drew us into picking up these, uh, films and watching them for the first time. And, uh, I really think that it's one of the, uh, missed, um, missed things nowadays because, I mean, when, when you go and pick up, like, a lot of DVDs and, like, standard stuff now that they don't, 
they don't quite create, you know, as cool posters or as artwork that yeah. they used back in the eighties. I mean, what do you think? I agree with that. You see a lot of homage type stuff. It looks pretty good, but it, it's it's interesting because yeah, like the, even when they're doing the homage stuff, it, it it doesn't quite full. It's good, but it's not quite fully. There was something about that time and era that can't really be. You know, some people are good can redo it nicely, but for the most part, you see a lot of you know pale in comparison type situations. You know, yeah. I mean, the thing is that it's it's actually I think it's a lost art form. I mean, you go and, I mean, I think one of the funniest things is uh, when when you go down, uh, especially back in the day when you would go down to Blockbuster or Video Island or any of those small uh, rental stores, and you go in and you see all these different VHSs out there to be picked up. And, of course, you're looking at it, and, and what gets your eye first is, of course, the cover yeah, then, yeah. You know, you pick the pick it up and then you take it home. And of course, what I always find hilarious, which was one of the things I actually kind of enjoyed, was that you look at the cover art and it looks really cool. Mm-hmm. And then when you actually watch the movie, it's not quite as cool as the cover art. So yeah. you know, you're kind of like, huh, that's interesting. Sometimes the cover art is like the best part of the movie. Well, but there's a reason for that, because some of these movies that were very low budget, and even the filmmakers knew, they knew if they had a kick-ass piece of art, then that basically could help provide some form of um, credibility to the shelf life and integrity. Because if you can make a really cool piece of art, and actually, as an exclusive, just for this... Who would be interested in seeing a piece of artwork that I'm making for the the Wicked Hollows? I, I want to see. Hey, I want hey. to see. Monkey Man. All right. So yeah, Billy. I wonder what effect Billy would be bringing. Is it? Does it begin with an O or an I? Begin with an I, right? Oh, wait a second. Nice. I like it. There you go. Yep. It's a little piece of uh, promo uh, artwork that I've been creating off and on for the Wicked Hollows. Yeah. Well, I like that. I thought that was something else. I almost wouldn't have shown that. But. But you have to actually watch this in order to get the exclusive. You got to see it. You got to see it. I was was hoping for intestines. Intestines. But. I mean, the thing is that, you know, you might or you might not see a little bit of uh, a little bit of something, a little flavor in this episode about what we're doing and what we're doing on the weekends. A lot of flavor, a lot of flavor, a lot of fun and fire and and bloods, you know what I mean? Some stuff like that. So, Alex, I don't know. There is no Alex here. Ape it. Yeah. What's Alex been doing with himself, you know? Well, uh, when, uh last time I talked to Alex, uh, he was talking to me about, uh, you know, last weekend being on set on the Wicked Hollows, uh, yeah. uh working with a great group of guys, being directed by the one and only Mr. Matthew Fisher. Oh, that's cool. 
And the great oh. Billy Boyne there for special effects and sound. Very important and a lot of fun. The best crew you can ever get anywhere in New England or anywhere else. There you have it. Has Alex been jumping around doing any other big films that we should be looking out for since, you know, anybody that just tunes in for Horrorween yearly might want to know what's going on. And he ain't oh, too I'm, big wigging. He's too, too much of a big shot to come to the show anymore, you know. Yeah, well, what can I you know, say? Alex is a little bit full of himself. Who, I, 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 I like to hang out with my, my, my buddies and, 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 and talk shop. That's why I'm here for Halloween. But, when we're uh, filming, we have to open the bay dorks just so Alex Hawk's uh, ego can fit inside of the place. Yeah, we well, gotta get an air rotation in his belly, and that's that's quite uh, quite a feat within itself. You gotta have uh, at least a couple windows down when Alex's ego is in the building, because if the windows are up, you could die from it. You could die inhaling all that, you know, exhaust, ego smoke. Whew. But uh, I was talking to him, and he said that he has a few things coming out uh, on Halloween Never. itself. Anyone who likes vampires. Hell, I love vampires. It's a queen. Yeah, and and, and, and vampire hunters and and good old-fashioned, you know, Western-style, you know, fighting and all that. That's uh, that's Bloodthirst coming out on Halloween through Lionsgate. On, On Halloween itself? On Halloween itself. Just right right now, it's out? No, no, no. It, it, yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It, right it, now. It. Uh, just go to uh, Amazon and uh, order your copy right now. You'll get to see Alex as a uh, asshole militia man that uh, is part of a uh, ragtag group of Melissa, that thinks that they own the wasteland. Well, the truth is, the vampires are the ones that own the wasteland. I got a bloodthirst to see that movie. Me too. Heck yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. And it, uh, also, in a few other things, there's uh, there's a slasher film that's uh, that's going to be coming out. Actually, uh, just came out last month. Doctor Jeff. Yeah. Has a small role in that. Um, Macabre Mountain. He has another yeah. small role in that. That just premiered last weekend. And uh, there's another one, Bermuda Triangle Project, which is going to be released, uh, I think, next week, like next Monday or something. If it doesn't so- get lost in the Bermuda Triangle on the way. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have our guest of the evening, uh, first guest of the evening, I believe. We'll see. Popping in. For Halloween 2023, from the set of Spookies, the great Frank Farrell. Welcome to the show. Frank, welcome to the show. Hey there, guys. Thanks for having me. Hey, great to meet you. Happy Halloween. You know what I mean? Almost, yeah. (laughs) And we're getting there. Just and, a few yeah, more weeks. You know, Frank's been on the Boombastic Cash show before, and we wanted to have him back 
for our big Halloween special to talk about uh, one of the films that he was a part of that we love so much. Spooky's my God. You know, Bill was just talking about it uh, a few seconds ago. He pulled up his poster, which is nice. I like it. I like it. It's uh, an original. I'm sorry for the framing of this thing, but it, yeah. it almost it almost looks exactly like the one I have framed in the same frame. That actually is the one Billy stole it. <laughs> nice, nice, love that artwork. Classic. Actually, Frank, who did the artwork for your poster? Oh, you don't know. I do know. His name escapes me because he's a very recognized artist. I just... Um, oh, yeah, yeah. It's uh, Richard Corbin. Yeah, Richard Corbin. I mean... I mean, going back to, like, uh, you know, when I was a young teenager, he was really one of my favorite comics artists. He started out in the underground comics okay. and then working for Warren Publications, doing, like, creepy and eerie and things like that. And uh, he only did three movie posters, one of which is Spookies. The other two are Heavy Metal and The Phantom of the Paradise. The company, right? Yeah, yeah. It's bizarre because he's. I just think he's a fantastic artist. He would have seemed natural to do dozens of movie posters. Yeah, maybe he didn't quite like it, you know, like that 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 side of it. I, I don't know. I mean, I know, uh, you know, he's uh, he became more and more recognized almost with every year. So I, I uh, and actually, I was surprised his his doing the one sheet uh, artwork for for Spookies was uh, after, I guess you're sort of somewhat aware of the debacle that we had with the, yeah. the background and all that, but that was one of the things that shocked me. That wow, he, How did he get Richard Corp? This is probably the same person I would have wanted to get. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the only other person that really pops in my head that to do beautiful artwork was uh, Lee McLeod with um, all of those uh, Charlie Band um Movies mm-hmm. from the eighties and nineties, because sometimes those movies, you know, the artwork, you know, it's, it's amazing how. Well, traditionally on horror and exploitation and science fiction, the posters are, are you know almost designed to be better than the movie. Like they'll be packed with stuff that couldn't possibly be in a movie this yeah. cheap or or whatever. And, yeah, and we're, we're talking about that of how you know they would take you know maybe like a few key scenes you know maybe from a movie and almost do like a. Slight mosaic, you know. Yeah, but I mean, look, that's exactly what they're still doing right now. Mm-hmm. If you look at, at similar types of movies and what and what their poster artwork is like, um, you know, I mean, I think that's, I think that's, I've always felt that's part of it. Was you know, not so much with with horror or science fiction specifically, but with sort of uh, low budget genres that maybe are a little bit uh, out of the mainstream, and they need sensationalism to sell them. So it's like. It's. Uh, I think this is one of the reasons a lot of horror fans are into things like circus sideshows and freaks and things like this oh, yeah. because it's, it's, there's this sensationalism. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm seeing something I, I'm not supposed to or nobody else knows about this or whatever it is. So uh, I think that's always gone hand in hand. So the posters usually oversell. In fact, when I see a poster that seems kind of like laid back, I'm very, I'm very suspicious of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean the artwork is so huge, you know. It's like VHS, and it's like you keep you can have the movie really in any format nowadays, you know what I mean? But it's like you want that kind of old, as pristine as can be VHS cover. It's just there's something about. We got into a conversation a while back about like how the DVD has got the physical cut. There's just something about it being printed right there on the box, as opposed. Well, I realize that that's why that that, I mean uh, VHS has retained its popularity with collectors and uh, 
in general right now, the collectors are keeping the, uh, you know, the DVD and Blu-ray market alive. Yeah. You know, they're, they're the ones who will spend extra to get something different or to get something, you know, more than what they had before or whatever. Yeah. And now yeah. there's these boutique labels, almost like Vinegar Syndrome, which did a beautiful job, you know, with uh, the movie. And, you know, some other companies, you know, that are really starting to showcase exploitation. Oh, yeah, I, I think, I mean, a lot, they're the bigger, you know, there's Vinegar Syndrome and, and uh, a few others here and in Europe. But they've continued to, to to do strong business, and there are lots of other little pop up labels that almost seem to come out to release one or two films, and then that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, <clears throat> I mean, one, the one thing I love about Spookies is the cast. It's just you really? know, so that's not a compliment. That's not a compliment that the movie gets frequently. <laughs> no, but but the thing is, I mean, I understand how a lot of these people, like, you wouldn't think they would be friends because, you know, the age range and, you know, some of the, how the you know, like, you yeah, might have someone who looks well, like... Well, in, in our original cut, there was, a, you know, there were a few lines of dialogue sort of telling you why this older guy might be hanging out with these other people. Plus, keep in mind, initially, we were ordered to do a film with teenagers, right? And to tell the truth... I know this is a popular trope of, of horror movies, man, but I never wanted to see a movie because the main characters were teenagers. That, that never occurred to me as a film goer, yeah. you know, no matter what age I was at. Uh, but I, I, uh, uh, we just, we, we basically just went ahead and did what we wanted in terms of what we did with the characters, et cetera. And, uh, you know, most of those, the actual actors are in their twenties. I think a couple of them are in their thirties. That's kind of the way it is, though, you know. We, we're we currently doing a film right now, and we had some issues in the beginning, you know, because originally it was supposed to be teenagers. And uh, right. just, like, finding some, te- you know, some good teenagers that cared and had the talent was kind of, like, a difficult thing. It is, it's harder to find good young actors than slightly older people who have had a little bit of experience. Yeah, and you think about all, like, the old 80s movies that we really love. It's, like, it's always, like, 30-year-old people playing 18-year-olds and stuff like that. Well, it's that, but please, but also understand that that was, you know, a few movies are successful, you know, between uh, Halloween and Friday the 13th, and the, uh, I'm I'm not a, I'm very critical of distributors in, in, from, from the beginning of movies until now, just about. They're almost all crass businessmen. They don't really quite get in many cases why they're selling uh, something that's really popular with certain people they just know they're making money yeah, yeah it's uh well there's the, they're the business and then there's the creative side of things you know what i mean right and you can do both i mean i've had to learn and deal with you know a good deal of business in in my time and i think you need to have a sense of all aspects of things but um I would say uh, distributors are not in it because of their love of the art. Right, right. I agree with you. I mean, it, it is frustrating when you're trying to get your movie out there and you discover the unscrupulousness of, you know, some folks. When well, it right comes- now it's weird because it's like a double-edged situation. It, it's easier and cheaper to make a movie than ever before. Absolutely. And thousands of people, and probably I'd say maybe the majority of them are far- horror fans making their first feature film. And getting distribution because there are dozens of distributors out there who'd be happy to take your film and find some artwork for it and sell it wherever they can. Uh, whether you ever see any of that is an entirely different story. The chances yeah. are that no, you will not. Not so much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is, and it's, it's sad because, um, I mean, probably, you know, 
if you look at something like that, I mean, most of those films are not going to be great films. There are a few that might, you know, be here and there that are really done by talented people and that really have something special to offer. But um, the distributors are taking advantage of these people like never before. Uh, they, you know, they essentially, they offer contracts that if you read them closely, you realize, all right, this guarantees no money to us, no matter what happens. Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, as a filmmaker, I think that, you know, getting the film in stores you know, to go with the whole thing about like distribution. It's like that was really the goal, like, you know, not getting money like. Well, that that's still in, in yeah. terms of a lot of movies, especially of low budget filmmakers. Yeah. It's a big deal to get your film actually into a store on a shelf because that's a much more limited market. Right. But I mean, I know, you know, I mean, I know people who have like regular distribution through, uh, you know, like Walmart or, or other chains and and their films do get out there and on shelves. And I don't think they make the majority of sales there. Right. But it, it, just having it visible is a, is a, is a good oh, thing. Absolutely. Yeah. A buddy of ours, has, you know, I think with Walmart, uh, James Balsama. Right. And that's, who I'm, that's who I'm actually thinking. That's one of the people I'm thinking of. Because yeah. I know he has, you know, like, but, you know, I, I think as a collector, we definitely value the, you know, the 3D tangible nature of actually, you know, owning it and you know, working with I it. I mean, for me, you got to realize that to me, I don't have the same excitement. For, and the main reason is because I, when I grew up and first got into film, I started collecting films on 8mm, 16mm. Yeah. So to me, the tangible thing is having a print of the film in your hand that you can like actually like hold up to the light and see the images on. To me, that's like the physical object. The packaging, I don't have much as much of an attachment to. Well, and it's funny because speaking of pack- packaging, another film you're affiliated with where I think the artwork is absolutely stunning is Street Trash. Yeah. And um, I'm not 100% sure who actually did that artwork, but the, I've seen all the different iterations. I, and, for, and, I forget and the it, guy's name. I should tell you that um, my friend Jamie Chimino, who runs the Street Trash uh, page on Facebook and is mm-hmm. – uh, I would I would say the the most enthusiastic street trash fan that I've ever known is actually writing a book on the making of it, oh, yeah. and uh, it will be interviewing as many people as possible, lots of pictures and information nobody has seen before. And there's so many there, there's like uh, you know really tons of great little anecdotes and backstories and facts, all kinds of stuff that really never uh, has been talked about that much. And well, uh, I'm looking forward to that. I, th- I think he's going to have something very good. What was the reception like with the whole 42nd Street in New York with um, the release of that movie? Because, I mean, it's it's very This is embarrassing to to admit, but I don't even know if Street Trash ever played on 42nd Street or Times Square. Now, bear in mind... I grew up that like a I lived uh, outside of New York City, you know, like uh, north north of New York City, and as soon as I was old enough for my parents to give me permission, I started like going to the city every weekend to watch, you know, to go to to time. I didn't tell them where I was going, but I was going to Times Square, Forty Second Street, in the middle of the red light district, and I was seeing as many movies as I could see in however many hours that I had. And in those days, it was great because, I mean, there was just like, you know, like eight or nine or I forget exactly how many were just on one block of 42nd Street with the double and triple bills. And I mean, I remember prices as low as 75 cents admission. Wow. Yeah. And that was cheap at the time. So yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just amazing hearing the history of, you know, those Grindhouse movies from people like uh, Frank Hennelotter and Bill Lustig talking about their infinity, you know, with those... Uh, with that location, discovering right. all those great old movies. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it, it was the only place, a lot of stuff, it was literally the only place you were likely to see these movies at all. I mean, they were the equivalent of the drive-ins in other parts of the country. Yeah. And, that, you know, essentially this is what these, you know, a lot of these films were designed to do to play these kind of situations. And, uh, you know, in a lot of cases, they'd strike off a limited number of prints and they'd just keep transporting them all over the country until they fell apart. And I, and I saw a lot of those prints. Yeah. Well, after seeing the print, I think that's why you, you definitely like the film, like you were saying. We might be getting down more with box art. It might be our, like, little deal, but ho- holding up the film in the light and being able to see it. Like, cause I was never, I don't know about these other gentlemen, but I would love to. I own some, like, 35-millimeter trailers. I have, like, a uh-huh. box of them now that I like to look at, you know what I mean? But, yeah, I definitely feel it. You feel you on that. I mean, I, I have friends who are, who are collecting, still collecting 16, and some of them are even collecting 35, and 35 is probably uh, a lot more easier uh, to obtain these days because nobody's showing it. Yeah. I noticed on eBay, you know, you can actually get a decent price now for 16 millimeter compared to, say, like uh, trying to obtain a 35 millimeter. No, I mean, for a long time, I mean, the reason I became a film collector like so many other people is th- there was no other, other, other than seeing a movie on television in its original theatrical run, or maybe at a museum or, or something, you know, or a revival theater, there yeah. was no way to see most of these. I remember watching so many films, uh, you know, years ago, back in like, you know, say the seventies, even the eighties that I, I'd be sitting there thinking, wow, I really, I have to remember this cause I'll probably never see it again. Yeah. Yeah. And there's that whole, almost like preservation, you know, mentality that comes in, you know, when you start collecting, you know, because you really value what you have, and you know you just really exactly. Kind of- well, it's, it's become like I mean, I've always been a big fan of film preservation, in t- just in terms of of uh, you know I think all films from all times should be preserved, no matter what they are. They're yeah. just historically, uh, and I watch old films, and I mean old films from every decade, from the beginning of film until now. I because I learn stuff all the time. I mean, I frequently see stuff you know, done, you know, decades before anybody would think, you know, certain techniques were used or something. And I've seen things, you know, many times I go, wow, this is like, nobody, this is not like well-known, but this, this thing, right, this thing I'm looking at here is like kind of totally innovative for, for that year or what, you know, you would expect from those people. Um, and I like that. I like that sense of like discovery and of knowing uh, that uh, there was a lot more going on than general information would allow you to know. And I think it's yeah. wonderful how you have people. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think the big thing is, especially now since so much stuff has gone on streaming, and I know that they were talking about in Best Buy how they're going to be stopped carrying their DVDs and that kind of stuff. Yeah. That um, I think it's it's a big thing for anyone who's a film lover to buy um, as much, especially the uh, uh, stuff that's out of print. Try to get. Mm-hmm. Because I think honestly, it's our job to try to preserve these things because a lot of people, you know, who are in charge, that they look at these uh, these films and they think of it. Well, you know, no one's going to want to watch this. You know, thirty years. They 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 like you said. You know, look, uh, look for the money in it. And and the fact is, there's so much great creativity and great um, stuff out there that needs to be, you know, saved and preserved and, you know, tangible, whether, whether it's 35 millimeter, 16 millimeter, or whether if, it's deep. In many cases, you just have to take it how you can get it because that's all there is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, 
there's there's like uh, uh, movies that Matt have that's on VHS. You'll never find on. Can't even get them anymore. Or, yeah. or anywhere else. I mean, and and the fact is that as as with streaming trying to take over. I mean, you know, well, streaming is, streaming has taken over. There's no yeah. question. Yeah, I mean, all all they have to do is just you know. You know, decide one day, well, you know, not enough people are watching Spooky, so we'll just take this off and then you'll never see it again. That's why. Well, it, at the moment, it doesn't work like that because um, a lot of these places will just keep putting stuff up. You know, they're um, especially company. I mean, like Tubi or, or some of these, uh-huh. you know, basically free sites. I mean, they're, they're putting up all kinds of stuff that a lot of which can't have that much of a following. But, you know, whatever they're paying versus whatever they may be making in terms of ad revenues, ultimately, uh, you know, it, it, the, I guess the, the transaction works for them. And I think that's good, actually. I, I actually saw a guy, I, a guy I, I think it may have been on my page, somebody responding to, to, to some uh, post I made or something, and somebody complaining that uh, – all the streaming companies were now wiping out their libraries, so you couldn't f- get the movies anymore by, from that service or this service. And and, and all I could think was, well, f- well, first of all, they they keep trading pro- movies and, and and titles all the time. Nobody, you know, unless they actually own all rights, they're not going to have it forever. Beyond which, what makes you think streaming is like some kind of an actual, you know, like medium where things are preserved? It's not. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you've got to have some physical form for for things to be. Uh, you know, technically preserved. Yeah, and it sounds it sounds like from what I'm reading about you know preservation of these films, it sounds if it's, it's not, if you have I guess the 35 millimeter negative, then you know, and you hold on to that, then it's amazing what you can do. You know, yeah. oh, it, the it, 35 it, millimeter it, negative of, of Spookies um, was what they used. You know, for the uh, our Blu-ray release, and it looks better on Blu-ray than I remember it ever looking in its original release, just on a regular 35 millimeter print. Um, you know, it looks uh, it, it looks rich and clean. It <laughs> does. And I remember um, with preservation, one person who was a big proponent and actually was talking, Joe Dante. Yeah. Um, you know, almost like if you can take your movie and you can put it on VHS, then you know that way you have a master of it. And, you know, you can kind of, you know, do what you want, I guess, as you will. But no matter what that, you know, if they have those negatives, but if you don't have them, then, you know, the work print, you know, it's like, I mean, how good does that look, you know, because yeah. you never know how they're going to be formatting this stuff you know, for disc. You know, film, you know, getting the reels of film is something I always would love to have collected those, but. They, I used to go on eBay every now and then and look them up, and they'd be like, you know, for like five, six, seven hundred bucks, you could probably get like. I remember Texas Chainsaw Massacre Two was floating around for a while. Mm-hmm. There, there's, um, you got to worry about like they turn red or something like that, or yellow or something. If, if they're if they're done on like uh, certain kinds of film stock, like especially the Eastman Kodak stocks that were being used for a long time, yeah, they they tend to after a certain amount of time just go pink, red, more, you know, I mean, sometimes seriously red, yeah. but. You know, that was, I mean, the only stable color process was the old Technicolor process that they pretty much stopped using in the 60s. Yeah. And then there were other companies like Deluxe, I think, that came in a little later. And Yeah, know, I mean, there were, I mean, when I was in, when I worked in New York City, there were like uh, five or six labs, uh, many different uh, film companies making their own stock. Um, you know, I mean, like the ideal thing to use was Kodak film, though, if you wanted to buy like Fuji film 
or a couple of other brands that were available, you could get a better price. You might not get quite the color spectrum that you wanted. Wasn't the news shot on film back in the day? Oh, well, for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if they did like something on the street or, you know, or interviewed some, anything that was not in the studio was shot on 16 millimeter film usually. Yeah. Okay. With George Romero, I believe got his start doing like the news shooting his news. Yeah, I mean, he sh- in his early career, he was shooting, making anything he could, commercials and industrial documentaries, and I recently saw the uh, the film he did called... Uh, oh, the Amusement gosh, Park? Amusement Park, yeah, which yeah. is about the horrors of, of old age, really, more than anything else. Is that what it is? I gotta check. It's super cheap on Amazon. I've been meaning to grab it. it. it, it you know, you gotta realize that he, he was making a film, you know, for people who wanted a certain type of film, you know, and I thought, you know, he did something creative with the premise. Um, it's, uh, you know, but it's also a typical industrial film of that time, you know, meaning yeah, yeah. Uh, meaning it's kind of like dated in terms of, of the way it's trying to tell its story and give its message. And uh, it's, uh, you know, but it feels it feels like any cheap film of that time. It's, you know, grainy 16 millimeter and all the other trademarks. That's that kid. That might that you know, <clears throat> I assume that's what it was. There's probably a reason why we didn't see it for a while. And uh, like to go into the artwork stuff, like the artwork that they made for the re for like what's out now with like it's the dude's face with like the middles, like the fer- the fucking the roundabout thing. What do you call that with the horses? Merry go round. So it's like right. the, the, the great artwork, like that artwork is what pulls you in. So to go case in point on that artwork talk, you know, but it was good. You liked it. I gotta check it out. Yeah. So what yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. Fred Rogers colonoscopy. Oh, yeah? You like that? I thought that was rather interesting when I found out Romero actually documented that. Oh, oh I hadn't heard that. <laughs> I mean, no, but I'm fascinated by, you know, Romero because, you know, as a filmmaker and especially in his young career starting, and I, he did something with Fred Rogers. It was like, like a medical thing. Oh, and, oh, actually, that I'd heard, but I, I didn't know it was his colonoscopy. I th- I think I heard one ask <laughs> Oh, well, he's not afraid to go where most men don't want to go. <laughs> no, he wasn't. And, uh, you know, I mean, George, uh, uh, as, you, as you may know, I'm a zombie in Dawn. And uh, I didn't know that. Very cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the seltzer zombie. I get uh, when, when the, the motorcycle gang breaks into the mall towards uh, the end. Uh, Tom Savini and his gang come in, and uh, Savini sprays me in the face with a bottle of seltzer. Okay, I, that's yeah. I'm an alumni of Savini's actually, and uh, you know, at orientation, he loved showing the video of that you know seltzer footage. So you're actually at the orient. Yeah, yeah well, that I mean, that was amazing because uh, I, I went down there with uh, one of my Spookies partners, and we were just like, you know, wow, a chance to be in the, the sequel to Night of the Living Dead. Because uh, Night of the Living Dead was just a very iconic horror for, film for me in the years preceding that. And uh, it was just, uh, it was a blast. Uh, the scenes we shot were totally, like, unscripted. And it was just, you know, George had some time and money and wanted to fool around and play with some ideas. And that whole scene was, he was, as we were shooting, he's saying, I don't know if this is going to wind up in the picture. It did. So, you know, you and your partner just... Like nowadays we could like if you know if, if if the great George was still with us you know what I mean like you can't just make it called the set but back you hear like other filmmakers have done that in the past you know when it was more like easy to get into those things now would you who who would you like contact was it like his production company and just said we want to come at in? the time we had just we heard that they, they were shooting at this mall yeah I don't know 
can't remember exactly how we got the production office number. We did. We said, oh, well, we, you know, we'd like to come and be zombies. Oh, well, come on. We need zombies. Yeah. Yeah. This is when the concept of the mall was, I don't know if it was fairly new because I know they had some built, or maybe it was the fact that it was abandoned. That kind of gave. Oh, no, no, it wasn't abandoned. I mean, it was a fairly mall and malls at the time were still a big deal. Not like now where most malls have closed down. Yeah. but I mean, at that time, I mean, to go, to be able to go to one building and have like all these stores and all this merchandise, that was still an exciting thing. Um, and he, uh, you know, and he, and bear in mind too that the film was still, you know, technically a low budget film. Uh, and he, you know, he had a lot of stuff, you know, I said, well, he said, well, you know, I wish I had, you know, the budget to do certain things. And I said, like, what? We said, well, you know, I'd like to just be able to like drive a motorcycle through that store window over there and things like yeah. that. And I, I can understand that because you can't, re- you know, there was like a certain distance he could go. But if you look at that scene, like anything that's destroyed is something that was built just for the film. True. Yeah. That's a good point. So and he probably had his hand up saying, hey, can it be me who does that? Because he loved doing, you know, well, some of the stuff. Where I was there. I, I was there when he did um, the, the stunt um, when, when the um, when he gets knocked off the balcony. It falls in the boxes and he misses right. or, hurt or whatever. Oh, you, you've heard this? I've heard something, yeah. Yeah, he, he he came down and he came, and he landed like half off the boxes, and it wasn't you know it was like maybe a twenty five thirty foot drop if I remember. Yeah, but, but it's not the kind of thing you you want to find that you don't have the cushioning there when you fall. Yeah, and that could have been that could, if he had just like you know been over a little bit more, he could have been seriously injured. It, it, it would seem so. You know, it was uh, it was exciting. <laughs> Uh, no, it's funny. Uh, as an alumni, you know, of his program, I'd seen the conventions over the years. One of the more recent conventions, my arm dislocated. Um, and Tom is the only person I would trust to actually pop my arm back in the socket. Oh, I, I've had that happen to me three times. I, that's what I did. At least it does, yeah, happened to me. That. And then I went in for the rotator cuff surgery. And my I, I, the, the first time it happened, I went to a doctor and had to have it fixed. And just for popping it back in, I got charged some ridiculous fee. Right. The next time it happened, a friend of mine, I said, look, just pull my arm. And they got it back in. The third time it happened, nobody was around. So eventually I just had to grab a doorknob and use that to get it back in. Hmm. And it just popped right in. It doesn't feel good yeah. when, you, when you dislocate a limb. It's, it feels, really, really, it's very disorienting. It is. Oh, dang. Oh, dang. Bill is the master of pulling out his arm, for sure. I know that for facts. Well, I've, made, I've made plenty of body parts over the years. The last thing I want to do is basically recycle my own. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, – well, the thing is also – I mean, injuries happen in all kinds of ways. I've gotten mine – I I have movie-related injuries, you know, and I'm sure most people who have done any physical stuff oh, – yeah, stunt work or whatever. I mean – Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, as a producer, I remember I banged my head on a set and then just like you – know, Yeah, and the thing is – you don't even have to be a stuntman if you just regularly do stuff that involves physical action. You're going to get hurt all the time yeah. because, because there's just no way to avoid it. I mean, you can avoid a great deal of the stuff, but uh, accidents happen. Yeah. Well, what we're filming right now, uh, there's one spot where we, where we put some of our equipment, and inevitably, it's that there's a low beam as soon as you come up, and every everyone has smacked their head on this thing. <laughs> 
And that's another thing too. It's like when you when when you have a small budget, you have to put up with stuff like that. Yeah. If you have a if you have a large budget, you just say, all right, you know, take this away or rebuild this or do whatever. We don't want to hit our heads anymore. Cut it out, yeah, cut a notch out. And it's nice because if you have a little more budget, then you can be in a little more control in in certain environments. Well, I've always felt that, like, I mean, uh, a, a huge budget and the huger the budget, it's really. It's not even so much there for, for what gets on the screen. A lot of it is there simply for cushioning, for less less stress for everyone involved, more comfort. Everything's easier to do. There's always enough help. There's always enough assistance. Uh, you know, whereas uh, you know, on Spookies, uh, we even though we you know had a reasonable budget for the time in terms of a really low budget film, uh, but it was only still, you know, we spent about a quarter of a million dollars. So that's a gorgeous piece of property that you filmed on. Oh yeah. 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 We were lucky to get, and it was very local. It was only about like five, maybe two miles from where I lived at the time. It goes along with the close location. Well, you can't. And the fact is also that, uh, you know, that, that whole area is full of like old houses. So, I mean, we, we were looking, you know, we knew we'd find something, in the area, but we found something closer that, that was good for myself and my two partners. And, uh, once we got past the negotiation for the use of the space, cause we had a lot of obstacles in our way, including the town who thought we would damage a historical site, which it was, uh, although it wasn't officially de- declared a national historical landmark until after we shot there. And I think the fact that, that there was controversy about us possibly shooting there sort of helped that to happen. And, and I, I, I think I remember correctly on the documentary that you talk about uh, some haunting and some bizarre situations that happened. Uh, yeah, well, yes. Yeah. Some of the people there have claimed that they had incidents with ghosts or weird things happening, et cetera. And I've heard these stories. Um, I mean, I don't know what to say. I'm somewhat skeptical about some of these but stories. You know, but you didn't experience any of that. So, you know. I've, I have yet to have a supernatural or, or bizarre experience of any sort. And I'm waiting. I want it to happen. Mm-hmm. It's like I want the universe to, to send me something that will totally freak the fuck out of me. Yeah. But it hasn't, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I'll be that lucky. Um, and again, I also wonder, it's, it's the kind of thing where I, I wonder now, because some of these stories that I've heard recently, one of them coming from one of my, my partners, Brendan Faulkner, on the film, where he's talking about ghosts and this and that. And I, and I don't remember anybody telling these stories at the time we were making the film. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Yeah, because I think it was one of the Muckman himself, an effects artist, an old buddy, uh, Gabe Bertalo. Yeah, yeah. I think Gabe actually said, you know, like, I thought I heard some woman screaming, you know. I'm no, over here doing... No, he, Gabe, I mean, Gabe, and I've only heard this from Brendan. I've never actually asked Gabe about this, but he supposedly, as when we were just getting, you know, I I think it was within the first few weeks we were on the property, that he went upstairs and then he comes down and he says, who's that woman upstairs? And and they said, what woman? And apparently he saw some woman upstairs that wasn't upstairs. Yeah. Um, But I haven't asked Gabe about it. It's high energy. It's the energy, you know what I mean? Well, it could be almost anything. I mean, any old if there are if there are ghosts, any house that old, a couple of years, hundred years old, is going to have ghosts. Yeah, have yeah. And I think some people want to believe, and sometimes I think. See, the, I, my attitude about all these things, about all the paranormal, is I'm totally a fan, and I'm like totally interested, and I would love you know one or two of these things to be so you know absolutely confirmed that there was no no question. But my my rational mind also says, well. 
none of this stuff that people, a lot of people believe devoutly in has necessarily been proven. It's like, you know, I mean, you can point to this, this, and this and say, oh, this is evidence. But there's nothing, a lot, if, if these things, if, sorry, if certain things were proven beyond a doubt, we wouldn't be talking about them as if we didn't know whether they existed. Yeah, I take the X Files. I want to believe. Want to believe, but yeah. but I think that's a big part of it. And yeah, of course, yeah, I I would love to believe all these amazing, weird, interesting things are going on, and I would love to be you know surrounded by them and and whatever. Um, I don't think if I actually met a ghost, I, I might initially be shocked because I don't usually meet them, but yeah. I don't think I'd be afraid of a ghost. Well, what the yeah. fuck is a ghost going to do to me? Exactly. I don't, believe, I don't believe ghosts are doing things to people. And that's what's fun about the medium of film. You know, is, you know, to play with even those concepts, like the, all the Bigfoot yeah. movies that there are, you know, and, and just to create something that you haven't seen before. And, and that's what's wonderful about telling fantastic stories, you know, where here's something, let's put something out there. People believe to a certain aspect and let's make it entertaining. Right. And my attitude is like, I, you know, I, I don't take the attitude of like, oh, well, I'm a complete disbeliever. I have, you know, no, uh, you know, belief in any of this stuff. I'm like, as I said, I'm open-minded. I, I have no idea what may or may not be the case. I know where most evidence will point in certain cases and say, oh, this is unlikely or, you know, improbable or whatever, but I'm totally open-minded. Yeah. I think another question I have about Spookies, not to sound um, mean-spirited at all. Please. Uh, but it, it, it feels like Mike Lee did not make this production – uh, easy on you guys. It seems. Did, 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 have you seen the documentary? About I have. That? I'm just trying, I have multiple times. But okay. it's just, you Mike know, Lee made it a torture chamber. <laughs> I mean, it's just, uh, how did you guys just endure? Because I'm, we desperately, so, we had so much passion for what we were doing. Yeah. And that, you know, and it's and it's the kind of thing where I mean, and I've seen this happen in, in almost any situation where I've been involved, where there's you know the creative people here and the, and the financing or or people with the the ultimate power on, on another side, and there's always this kind of a back and forth conflict. The the problem, the difference with Michael was that he was uh, he was not very bright, he was not uh, a very kind or reasonable man he was paranoid he was crooked he thought everyone worked and thought like him which meant he kept anytime anything happened he says oh so you're gonna fuck me huh <laughs> it's like no matter you know no matter what the the, the actual circumstance was he yeah. just like immediately said all right you're doing this and you're doing it deliberately i mean it, it just amazes me the mentality of this man because i also saw that other documentary the vipco thing on right. there Oh, the and one that goes on forever? It's a very long documentary. And, you know, the thing is, the, here's a guy, and it seems like distri distributors back then of a certain nature, whether if you're, you know, Vipco or even like maybe Charlie Band with the Empire days, you know, maybe, maybe to buy, like buy Castle, you know, with X amount of right, dollars. Right. But, you know, it's almost like they need to kind of like balance these productions out somehow and not spend and spend the money I mean, it seems like the money back then that was being spent, you know, was just going all over the place, you know, and only a percentage was really going to you guys. Um, well, you mean in terms of distribution and, and, and returns or? or, or, or... No, no, just like how he would talk like, oh, yeah, like I would buy a car. And then, you know, I mean, talking about these extravagant and lavish things that Mike was doing, you know. I mean, we, we made 
in terms of what the income was for us personally making, writing, directing, producing Spookies, yeah. we made so little money that it's embarrassing, and I rarely actually even mention the the amount we were paid because it just we seems ruin your, we, won't, we won't ruin your Halloween by having to bring that number up. No, I mean, you know, oh, that wouldn't ruin it, but it was just the kind of thing where we had what would happen is we'd have a budget, and every time we you know you you constantly revise the budget because you get different ideas on what you might have to spend, and usually without fail, the cost goes up or, and you have to figure out a way to make the same amount of money stretch as far uh but I mean the easiest thing for us to cut that uh didn't take away from the movie was like our salaries in many instances. And you guys are lucky that that didn't happen. And I've heard stories, you know, I think through Canon, where unfortunately, I think they cut like a million dollars out of like Chainsaw 2 or something like that. So when it comes to that, that I hadn't heard. Okay. But yeah, Canon cut a a chunk of the budget, let's say. And Toby Hooper was not very happy, but you know. Didn't they give Toby a lump sum to do Invaders from... Mars and well, I, I think I think Golem and Globus tied him into a multi-picture deal, and I think it was Life Force, okay, where man. you know the, I think it almost bankrupted the company because he spent so much on that. They were at, at the time that they were were producing movies like Golem Globus, Canon, all that. I mean, you'd get like the big yearly uh, issue of Variety that had all the big uh, upcoming film ads in it, and they would have like fifty pages, full page ads for movies that they were supposedly making half of them might not get made at all yeah. but it just it just it seemed impossible to think one company was turning out this much stuff yeah it, it was impressive you know there's no denying that but it's a matter of how good is the product <laughs> it, well with i mean i mean canon and uh, going globus uh a lot of that level of stuff around that time that was a little more costly bigger budgets than the really Low budget stuff. They'd get you know name name actors. They'd occasionally make a quality film, yeah. but they were you know essentially turning out grindhouse films. Yeah, and I was fascinated hearing how I think it was Graydon Clark talking about Michael Milken, basically kind of this junk bonds guy, you know, working with the company. I mean, raising all these funds, you know, for these movies, and I didn't realize that Trump pardoned him. I guess with <laughs> while he was in office. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean that that doesn't surprise me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure a lot of those, like like Canon, etc. I'm sure a lot of that financing was coming through sources like you know Wall Street people, uh, and that there must have been an awful lot of money flowing them for to announce so many productions. Yeah, yeah, because sometimes you know, I mean, you care about when you get the money, but sometimes you don't ask how did you get the money, and it's you never ask where. You never yeah. ask where. Well, there's no but there's no reason to ask. <laughs> The problem is anything with big business where there are lots of dollars, especially millions of dollars and things like that involved, you just have to, just in the back of your head, even if you never bring it up, you know there's something crooked going on somewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure, but you're, you're, you're doing your thing, so don't talk about it. Whatever. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I don't really care where the money is coming from if somebody wants to finance a film. Um, you know, hope, hopefully there aren't too many people who have died to, to give me the, the money for the film. <laughs> no, I hear you. That's like Toby when he got he got in cahoots with like the mob. <laughs> that's like that that mob money got to be that happens, and that happened to like a number of filmmakers where they wind up like directly having to deal with these characters. Yeah, and- I mean the whole video market was really shook up. It seems like even like with the original Chainsaw Bryanson House, it sounds like you know 
I think it was Bob Burns said, those guys are mafias, you know, straight up front. No, but that's the thing. The mafia has always been involved with that end of filmmaking, pornography, definitely. Oh, yeah. Sure. But, you know, it was just a small step over to doing, you know, horror and, and action movies and all this other stuff. And, uh, you know, there was money to be made. I mean, with porn, it was a little different. It was like, you know, there, there wasn't as big an outlay of money, and the money came back very quickly instead of having to, you know, wait for it to get a legitimate re- release in many cases. Yeah. It's like people like this need to balance the books. So it's like, you know, <laughs> all right, let's give an investment here, and it can be a write-off or something or whatever the actions were to just kind of shift money around. I think it was a yeah. cool thing to do. I think making movies. Let's just say I've had my own dealings with people connected to the mob. And to tell the truth, they, they, they've been like more or less pleasant. I mean, there was never yeah. any problem. I, I had much bigger problems with Michael Lee. <laughs> he wasn't organized crime. He was just like would-be crime. He was more unorganized he was crime. Amateur. Unorganized crime. There you go. Uh, they're all pleasant. Does, a mob, does a mob figure... Does a mob figure care about the creative side of the film at all, or is it just a money thing? Whatever? I don't think so. And in many cases, um, depending, I would guess, on the situation, uh, there's always been, you know, like mob. the mob likes to launder money, meaning they yeah. like to be able to, like, put it into something, and then they might get some kind of a return out of whatever they put it into that's less than what they had. But they don't have to explain where the money came from at that point. Yeah, because I, I think I heard, even heard... It was through the Credit Lyonnais in the Netherlands, I think in the late 80s, early 90s, where, or the Credit Leonis, I think, uh, but you know, people like, you know, Lloyd Kaufman, um, uh, you know, uh, Charlie Band, I mean, you know, and it seems like with, you know, even like the theaters, the studios, you know, they have their theaters and it seems like, you know, when everything was starting to change from, you know, the, the video market, you know, there were so many different components. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Charlie Band was another one. There was a time during, you know, during those same years that I mentioned in the eighties where you see like 30 new Charlie Band movies coming out. You know, these were like theatrical movies. Um, yeah. I just think think ultimately at that time, what had happened is the video boom hit really hard. And a lot of these films, even if they did no business in theaters or didn't even get into theaters, they knew, they had guaranteed uh, profitability on the on the video market because everything was was making money on video at that time. And even like it seems like when video was when it, it, when its infancy, it had Charlie and Andrew Blay and you know a few others who really kind of you know built the home video kind of as we knew it. Especially when they because I think they even like from hearing stories. They even sold VCRs. I think in some of these video stores back then. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, VCR, I mean, VCRs and just the tapes themselves were at one time, you know, like insanely expensive. Big money, 130 bucks. I got a, like VHSs with $130 price tags on them. From, like, or sell through. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like when Spookies came out in VHS, the sales price to stores was $79. Yeah. And they, and they did very well with it from what I know. How many units did, uh, were made? It was in, I, I don't know after the initial run, but they initially had an order of like 30 something thousand units, which was considered, you know, for a film of that sort at the time, which was considered a, a great sale. It that's, seems to have shown up in almost every video store in the country because that's where I hear so many people still telling me, oh, when I was a kid and I saw this in the video store and I had to see yeah. it. Or, it, yeah, it m- most famous. So I can't look at that. Yeah. Look, you see, there's one of those 30,000 right there. Yeah. And it's just, 
you know, like, but you know, as, as the prices change, because it seems like in the nineties when I think sell through really went through, you know, then you can start. Realizing, it. Yeah. I mean, at first it was just rental. Nobody, nobody yeah. really could afford to collect films quite like that. I mean, some people did, but, uh, you know, at a certain point, it just, it really came down to the fact that, all right, they, they you know, they, keep in mind that we're talking about these plastic cassettes with, with magnetic tape in them that cost really not very much to make. So there was an enormous profit factor with all that stuff. Yeah. And hence the, the whole VHS rental world is spun from people not being able to just go buy it for their home use. Right. Know? And not, and, and here, I don't know if you guys heard this, but supposedly Netflix is opening up stores. Really? And I don't know what kind of business model they're planning to run on. I don't know if they're just doing rentals or they're doing rentals and sales or, but but at the same time, even though there are some people who might prefer that, I can't see how they can make a profit unless they're going to be doing something unexpected. Yeah, because it seems like, you know, not just Best Buy, but, you know, like Newberry Comics, which we have up here, you know, stopped with, you know, uh, Blu-ray and DVD and really cut back. And it's just, um, there's a sadness to it, you know, because I think they're trying to make <clears throat> everything stream, but still there are movies, you know, where they don't have the copyright and it's not like they can throw these movies up there, you know, like Tubi is amazing, you know, has a great selection. Well, Tubi is, is my favorite streaming service because it just has, you know, I, I'm not looking for all the newest releases. In fact, I, I'm no, probably not interested to the newest releases. Yeah. Is Spooky's actually streaming, or is it really only available? At the people? moment, I don't know where it might be streaming. I mean, it's been around. Uh, I actually heard it was on Tubi not too long ago, but uh, it was on. Sh- it was its first. Uh, uh, it was first on Shutter, and Shutter uh, then did you know they did uh, an issue uh, a um, an episode of The Last Drive-In with yeah. Uh, you know, with featuring Spookies and, uh, you know, and they, and it's, I have to meet Joe Bob at some point because he's I, been. I did an episode with him actually last season. I did the makeup for the centen- uh, Nosferatu Centennial episode. Oh. And, uh, yeah. good, good people. Uh, John. Yeah, no, I become friendly. I mean, I, I, um, I was invited. I was a guest at the Mahoning Drive, Mahoningville Drive In. Are you familiar with that at all? I am actually. Which is like, just like, you know, like, it's like where people, film buffs die and go there, you know, yeah. in the afterlife or something. Because, uh, you know, I mean, they, they were showing, uh, the night I was there, I mean, they, they show everything from VHS to 35 millimeter on their big screen. Yeah, my buddy Joe Lascola, um, I believe, is actually a frequent uh, vendor there. He has Movie Dumpster, to, uh, I think it's his website. <laughs> They make the pilgrimage. I'll see people from all over the U.S. You know, taking pics. It's in, it's, well, what part of Pennsylvania is it in? Is it more towards Pittsburgh? Um, um, the town it's in is actually Mahoning. Yeah. The, although the theater is in the, it's called the Mahoningville. I, th- I think. Okay. I, th- I or maybe the town is Mahoningville. I, I really I don't recall. But the the, the the single word Mahoning is used in reference to it a lot of the time. So. Yeah. Yeah, because I went to school in Pittsburgh, but, you know, I really didn't check out much of uh, Pennsylvania itself. Right. And what you were saying a moment ago about, about stores and, and, and uh, you know, physical locations where you can buy stuff. Um, I mean, there's still a number of them. I was invited. I was a guest at uh, one uh, back in uh, uh, August, uh, the uh, or- Orbit DVD, which is in uh, North Carolina. Yeah. And 
and they have a huge store. I mean, I, I, I walked in and I was like, wow, this is like, and they had, you know, everything, movies and posters, comics and all the stuff that you would expect uh, that fans would be looking for. And I remember I'm in there, I'm looking around, I go, wow, I can't believe you've got all this space and you're actually like able to stay in business. And then he says, oh, well, come over here. And he, and he walks me into like another section of the store, just as big. Yeah. There's Scarecrow. We got Scarecrow video too, maybe in Missouri or something like that. They still rent out movies. I know they have uh, Insomniac and DJ Stand the Man DVD. We sent them. Yeah, I mean, look, there are still VHS stores in business. There's yeah. there's one uh, in the Spooky's documentary. I shot, uh, you know, like my interview stuff at a store. Was that, that Amoeba? Was, is that pardon me? Amoeba? Was it, was the name of that place Amoeba by chance? Uh, no, no, no. That's it's, a biggie. It's a, I, I forget where it is. It might be uh, in a town near me called Chatham. Yeah. But again, that was a fairly large space, and the guy had seemed to have like every VHS movie ever put on VHS. Well, it's beautiful shots at the beginning of that documentary, is you know to see it on the shelf because I mean you know seeing all the VHSs in there. I mean you know it's wonderful hearing that there are still. Oh, well, it was perfect. I mean, I, I can't believe that I discovered this place so near to me. Out of curiosity, how did the vinegar syndrome, um, uh, I, I guess, assembling everything, oh, how did that? I think they had been, you know, I mean, they're pretty much, they have their ear to the ground and they sort of know what's out there. They were aware of, you know, films that are either, you know, just represented in very poor quality prints or they're incomplete or, you know, there's like, uh, you know, there's a market there for something with, with a, a disc with extras and yeah. that sort of thing. Um, so, I mean, I think they've been on top of that for a while. And I think Spookies was something they were looking at for a while. Yeah. Uh, myself and one of my partners, uh, Tom Doran, who passed away a few years back, uh, had been for a number of years looking to, we'd thought about, all right, well, maybe if we could somehow get the rights ourselves, we could bring it out. And then, th then somebody might give us money to make a sequel. Cause that's probably the easiest way for us to get money to make anything. Yeah, cool. Um, and we eventually, we went in circles and the film changed hands over the years. It was owned by Vestron Video at one point, who had released it over in Europe. Uh, but eventually we traced it back, all the way back to Michael Lee. And at that point it was like, all right, well, Michael Lee is never going to give us the rights to our own film after what we went through with him. So we had to abandon that idea. But, but a couple of years later, Vinegar Syndrome came in and uh, the guys who did the documentary were guys I already knew. Um, so that worked out great. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, I had kept as much stuff as I could over the years and I had the biggest stash of materials that helped provide, you know, extras for the, the Blu-ray. Um, they, uh, I, you know, I have to say I'm really happy with the overall with the job they did. The, you know, the, the, uh, the documentary won a, uh, a Rondo award. I was just going to ask that. It was great because it sort of, um, it finally gave a clear enough picture of what had happened because there was so much bullshit information out there for many years. There was the constant refrain that it was a two movies that were shoved together, you know, that the original filmmakers were all fired. And technically we weren't fired. You know, we walked out because we couldn't take the abuse anymore. Yeah. And we must have really been sick of it because we put up with shit for like a year and a half prior to that. It's frustrating. I've, walked, I've unfortunately had to walk of one or two sets in my life, and in the uh, the way it fucks with your head, you yeah. know. I mean, it, it can really kind of 
just be damaging to a certain extent. It's, no, it, it is that. Well, cre- creative people are all, you know, are sensitive people one way or another. And it's like, I mean, myself and the guys that, that I made the film with, I mean, all we wanted to do was make the best goddamn film we could make. And, you know, and we were, we did not even get the respect or acknowledgement of that. We got like, you know, mostly like ire and, and, and anger and, and, uh, misunderstanding, I think, of what our motivations were. And was it tortured souls? Was that the twisted souls? Twisted souls. Okay. Right. And uh, you know, I mean, I'm look. I'm just after what happened to the film, and we sort of all, you know, we did not like the way it wound up, and we sort of disassociated ourselves, and we we found that there was no way for us to benefit by our association with it. Um, it just uh, it didn't help you know, career-wise in any way whatsoever. But that's, suddenly the film, the, the, the Blu-ray came out, the time was right, uh, the 80s, the people who were fans in the 80s love it, and the people who were fans in more recent years seem to love it. Yeah. You know, and it's and this is despite the fact that I think it has a million problems as a film, but that doesn't seem to matter because it's it's fun. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I was so happy when I heard that it won that Rondo Award because I think it's they're few and far between to have a really good documentary and just the shit that you went through. I mean, it, it, I love how it sets the record straight. And I love how, you know, the documentary is able to be, you know, it's very entertaining. There is tragedy to it. But I think the documentary is just as fascinating as the movie itself. No, no, that's said all the time that, you know, I mean... T- uh, people will say the documentary is more interesting and more fun than the movie, you know, whatever. And I, you know, I certainly can't disagree with that because I think it tells an, an interesting story. It's and it's unfortunately a fairly typical and common type of a story for filmmakers. Yeah, just yeah. having to go through all this shit, and all you want is to just make the best film possible, and you are being thwarted at at almost every juncture. It's it's just. Um, I it was, but I think I even heard Peckinpah had one of his films taken away from him. Oh, yeah, no, that happened to almost any director. Very few directors, I think, would not have to put up with that kind of shit at some point. Yeah, and it seems like it's, whether it's the studio system basically saying they changes or if it's the distributor and they I want... I mean, back to tell the truth, up until probably, like, the 70s, if you, worked, if you were a studio director, you contracted with a studio, you didn't have final say over the film. You didn't have, you didn't have a right to a director's cut. Yeah. Because didn't the concept... Until the director's cut only really come in within the past, like in the no. 80s, there, I mean, there have always there have been a lot of films that had you know there was an original cut, and then the director's cut might have still existed. But the commercial play, the theatrical play of the film, may have just been whatever the studio wanted. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think it's great that 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 you know the new me- that video mediums have provided this opportunity for films. Uh, even now, I mean, films will new films will come out with the director's cut and the theatrical cut. On the same, uh, you know, Blu-ray pack in the same Blu-ray package, and yeah. I think that's the way it should be. Myself, I agree. I just, it's wonderful because I think a lot of people, especially horror fans, bonus content. I think is almost something that people want a little more than the movie itself. Because well, that's I, because it's new. It's new. It's something different. It, it you know it adds to, especially if it's a movie that you really have an affection for. You know, it's it's not it's not like it's uh, you know it's it it. I mean, because I've discovered a lot of fans don't even care about the quality of the movie. Many fans prefer VHS quality just because it has that nostalgic ring for them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
I, I don't agree with that myself, but I understand. Well, I understand that. I recently acquired, actually, a video treasures copy of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And as as many, be- I mean, to see it cleaned up, it looks gorgeous. And I love right. it. 4K looks great. But when you have that grain, you know, or you have that, you know, kind of VHS. No, that, that's what all those films, I think, had at that time, especially if they were shot on 16 millimeter. You know, and a lot of them were, a lot of them were technically not very good, no matter what they were shot on. Yeah. It just it feels like there's something sort of like, oh, gee, I, I shouldn't be seeing this. Uh, uh, should this even be playing in my movie theater? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Spookies has been a long time coming. The fan horror fans been wanting that to get a good like a just do for a long time. You know what I mean? And it's so it's it's such a great flick. It's super creepy. You know, I rewatched it again recently. I like to always try and do it around the Halloween time. Mm-hmm. And I watched it like three days ago, and it was like the creepiness of it. And some of those makeups are fucking. It's such, makeups, I think, are great. Yeah, it's, it's like a. Yeah, I can only imagine, man. You can tell how much work went into making it, and you know, like you well, know. I mean, we really. I mean, here's the thing. I think a lot of that can be attributed to our our special effects people, certainly. Sure, yeah. But also, I mean, myself and my partners, you know, we were real fans, and we were very strict in terms of what we did or didn't like, and uh, you know, we wanted to have like just a you know a bunch of unseen, previously uh, you know never never before used monsters. And, uh, I think we, we more or less succeeded with that. And that was the, that was the heart of our original film. And it's still the heart of the film as it exists now, except that all the monster scenes are shorter than they originally were. And the whole context of them is completely different. I mean, I think one person who really doesn't, is not well known, but I think he is well known in certain circles is John Dodds. And I, you know, I think that spider creature with that transformation, I mean, I'm a, I grew, you know, I have a, an original poster of, uh, the deadly spawn as well, because right. that's one of those, like, but I mean, but with what Dodds and, you know, Gib or Talos, I can't remember if Jennifer Aspinwall was on, on your shoot or not. No, she was on, she was on both Spookies and Street Trash. I brought her over from Spookies and, uh, you know, I mean, and Jennifer, like, I mean, the thing is, I mean, Jennifer, Gabe, uh, Vince Guastini, who worked with us, yeah. all became pop Hollywood uh, professional makeup effects people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and didn't Jennifer win, like, for Saturday Night Live? She won like, Emmys for Saturday Night Live. Back, back, back in, like, the years where they were doing lots of character makeups. So, you know, she did stuff on, like, you know, Eddie Murphy and, and uh, you know, other people. It, it just, uh, I, don't, I don't, in recent years, I haven't seen them rely on that kind of stuff as much. Yeah, I mean, now you can just have a push of a button and, you know, kind of augment things where you can still do it practically, but some people just might want, might not want to give you the time. And it's wonderful when people do will give you the time to do practical. Yeah. Much yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think the mainstream mentality is more or less like, oh, well, we'll, we'll do it with CGI later or something like that. Uh, I don't think that's the best way to do anything, even if you have the capability. I, I I just feel you should have a, an idea of what you're doing in the first place. Well, absolutely, because there's nothing more frustrating when you have your first day on set and you hear, we'll fix it on post. That's the last thing you want to hear. You know? Yeah, but I hear, it, I hear it all the time. And I've, I've heard it from, like, really people, say it all the time. I've heard it from like, directors who have no clue how it will be fixed. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out later. <laughs> My goodness. My goodness. So... <laughs> Spookies being a fan favorite of mine around the Halloween season. Frank, what do you, yeah, any movies that you particularly like to watch around the 
Horror. I don't know. I mean, I've never. I'm not like one of these people who has a marathon of of like horror movies around Halloween. Because yeah. I watch. I mean, I watch all kinds of movies, and I watch all kinds of movies all the time. Um, you know, when I watch, I, I'd say I primarily watch stuff that's older. Uh, but at the same time, I'll watch you know anything new that seems interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm. Uh, it's gotten harder to know what to to do in, in recent years with so many like direct to video super cheapy movies being made, and there's like frequently like no point of reference for them. So you right. you have no idea how good or bad they really might be. You watch anything recently that you? Uh, I just watched this uh, new film called uh, Talk to Me. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. I've heard the title. Right, which is about the uh, this sort of. Uh, it seems to be like a statue, a sculpture of a hand that people, you know, like grab it and they, they, they're possessed by uh, a spirit. And, uh, and so, and so like a bunch of teenagers start doing all this shit, like as a regular thing they do for parties. It's great yeah. marketing. I've seen the tra- trailer. And, and the film was actually uh, pretty good. It was actually more tame than I expected it could be to be. It was done by, um, uh, there were a bunch of guys who had a, a, a wild video channel, which I can't even remember the name of right now, but they were, they're, they're Australian and they used to do all kinds of amazing action and stunt stuff and integrated with opticals and, and CGI. And it was, I, I discovered their channel a few years ago and I thought it was pretty impressive and I wasn't surprised they could get money to do a film. But this is very different and even though it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's out there, it, it's kind of restrained and more adult than I expected. Uh, growing up, who were some of your favorite uh, uh, monsters? You know, like I, Universal or, or you know, I, whatever. I, it, it was well. Here's the thing. Here's how I saw and experienced things. It's like the first ones I saw were probably you know miscellaneous, cheap movies from the '50s and a lot of the American International monster movies. And you know, and, and then I sort of started to see other stuff. I didn't see like the Universal horror films until. I was maybe like 14, 15 years old because they were off television for many years. But those was, AIP movies, you know, definitely have some resonance. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, well, they they really um, – I just – you know, I think all kids are sort of fascinated by the monster thing. I mean, there's that sort of fantasy element and et cetera. Uh, but I uh, – you know, I, I, mine didn't didn't pass. I mean, I think all kids have an initial interest and then they'll look for other things. But I was very fascinated with all that stuff. So I, I grew up just, you know, watching horror movies, reading horror stories, and uh, big fondness for black and white. I think black and white atmospherically is is probably better than color. It makes uh, the, the theater a little darker. You know, it can make things a little creepy. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, for certain films, I think it helps more to give you the, the mood and the atmosphere that you want. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I feel a lot of films... Uh, don't know how to use, I mean, like black is something a lot of filmmakers are afraid to use. Like in, even in dark scenes, you can see everything and, you know, you should have a little, you know, break that up a little bit. Yeah. <clears throat> You're afraid to go too dark. Well, too dark or, uh, <laughs> you know, lighting is be- like along with everything else has become somewhat easier with digital video than it was with film. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like with every step in technology, it's also an excuse for a certain number of people to just do things in a lazier way. Because oh oh it's easier now so we don't really have to do what we were doing before. Yeah, I mean, thirty year difference between lugging all that heavy equipment and then you oh. know getting a few lights and you know a camera. No, I'm, I'm really happy in terms of the technology where filmmaking 
is right now. I mean, I prefer film over video, but I defy like 99% of people to tell me whether something was shot on film or video, if it's shot well. Yeah. At a... That really... Spookies is one of the films that got me as a kid. I remember there's a couple films that I've seen before, and, and I, they burnt themselves into my brains. Toxic Avenger is one of them, and Spookies is the other. There's a third one. That- there's been sort of a weird, I don't know if it's exactly a rivalry or whatever that's gone on with, yeah. uh, well, because uh, Lloyd Kaufman apparently had a grudge concerning Spookies, and at least from what I've heard, I, and I've never met Lloyd or spoken to him directly. Yeah. I the trauma offices years ago on several occasions. Never yeah. met Lloyd. His brother Charlie, who directed Mother's Day, Mother's was, was a teacher of mine in, in college. Oh, very oh, wow. well. And uh, but Lloyd apparently always had sort of a grudge about spook, uh, not spookies, um, street trash. Street trash. Yeah. Oh yeah, because I mean, I don't know what it was between. He supposedly, from what I have heard, he was in. He was supposed to go to a screening, and he he was late. And he called him and said, "Oh, can you hold the screening for me?" And uh, Roy Frumkus, who you know, who was the uh, the writer and the central producer, said, uh, "No." <laughs> and, he's, and then he's remained sort of pissed about that ever since. On the, on the commentary track on Toxic Avenger, he starts talking about he starts bitching about street trash. He does, and I thought that was fascinating because for years I'm like, "What movie is that?" And then when I discovered Street Trash, when I watched the documentary about Roy Frumkus and the making of that, yeah. and then and revisited that, I'm like. I think he's talking about Frumkis, and I think it was Street Trash. So if, if you kind of know like that New York 1980s right, you know, right, kind of the right. DIY and who's who, you can kind of piece things together. Well, huh? He actually felt that like Street Trash was ripping off his trauma style. Yeah. At, at least I've heard this uh, from various sources. And the fact is, at that time, um, I think Street Trash was being made maybe when the first Toxic Avenger film came. I don't remember exactly, but none of us had seen it. I didn't see the Toxic Avenger for years yeah. afterwards. Um, and I, uh, you know, if I if I can stick up for Street Trash, I think Street Trash is better made than any trauma film. What year did you guys film Street Trash? Um, I'm trying to remember exactly. Uh, 85 into 86, okay. more or less. Between you know beginning pre production and, and uh, you know Jimmy Murrow, I mean my God, you know I mean that film looks like a, you know a ten million dollar movie. Yeah. Well, he 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 was our, he was one of the fortunate few nineteen year olds who owned a steady cam at the time, and that's rare. Big thirty five thousand dollars piece of equipment. That's big. Because I, when I saw Street Trash and the cinematography, I think I shortly afterwards I discovered. Uh, the se- I think it was the second or third sequel to Basket Case. And right. I believe it was, you know, Jimmy also was the DP on that. And it's just. Was he? I, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't think he, I don't know that's true, but I, I, I'd have to look it up. Yeah. I, I believe it was the one where they opened like in uh, the circus or something like that. I don't know if it was a flashback, if that was the second one or third one. But I mean, didn't Jimmy go on to win? In like a, Jimmy became Jimmy is one of the top Steadicam operators in Hollywood. He's also a director with lots of TV credits. Uh, he's done a few movies. I think I may have heard recently he's doing the the new Kevin Costner movie. Oh really? wow, that's awesome! You know, but I think uh, you know. I mean, we're also fortunate in terms of things like you know his dad was raising the money 
So he was giving his son a little more leeway in terms of, I mean, cause we went over budget and, you know, we, there was never any talk about, oh, well, now we're going to have to cut corners and do, you know, yeah. sort of like, oh, well, we got to get some more money. And I also loved hearing in that documentary how for catering you guys went to, you know, Aunt, Aunt Tony Tampone's, you know, from, Fangoria, I guess it was its father's like bakery or something like that. Oh, yeah, we well, well, I mean, we we for catering for catering, we went to a million things. We didn't have, I mean, on on a film with actual money, they will usually get a craft services company to come in and just put everything together and whatever. Uh, but uh, I've uh, I on on Spookies, we went the route of I because we were living on this estate where the mansion was, and we had most of the crew living there. Uh, I actually had a kitchen going, so I was like. More or less running a hotel with meals meals happening uh, that were made there. Uh, but on on Street Trash, we went out. And we bought food from you know numerous companies, and uh, you know I mean the, I remember the food being pretty good to tell the truth. Yeah. <laughs> so we must have been in the right location in terms of the the local businesses we dealt with. But um, yeah, I, I I mean I look back at it now. I'm just I. I had, uh, you know, my friend uh, Jamie, who I mentioned doing the Street Trash book, a couple of years he said to me, he said, you know, cause I was bitching about something. He said, but man, look at, look at, look at the re- the facts. You've been associated with three cult classic horror movies. Hell yeah. And, and that was the first time I actually thought of it in those terms. I said, well, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Hell yeah. And it must be, you know, to have that realization, you know, especially with, you know, like the midnight screenings of these movies. I mean, I imagine at a certain point. Like- right, but just to understand for years, this was not happening. I mean, Street Trash always sort of had a growing cult following through the years. And what's terrific about Street Trash is it seems to have remained as outrageous as when it was first made because people are still bitching about it. I mean, yeah, it, it pushes boundaries. I mean, the the whole, like, penis scene. I mean, there's just so many... Yeah. Wonderful, crazy moments. I mean, right, it's right. almost like a a beautiful fever dream, you know, like one of those movies that you you know might watch at like three o'clock in the morning, you know, dozing in and out. But it's like you're you're still awake, you know, because it just you know you're just captivated by everything. And I think you know, I mean, when, when, while we were making it, I mean, we were aware, yeah, we're making this movie, and it's intentionally offensive, yeah. but it's not. It's not. I don't think it was designed, you know, I don't think that we were thinking in terms of like, oh, we're going to provoke all kinds of uh, people. But it's not being spirit. We were just doing stuff we thought was fun and funny. Come up with an idea. And and a lot of times you come up with an idea and say, wow, well, could we actually do that? Well, yeah, we could do it. We just have to be willing to do it. Yeah. And it's so funny, too, because for some reason, I thought the whole thing with trauma and the kind of divide had something to do with – the gentleman, I believe his name was Pat Ryan, who was the the heavy set individual. Yeah, you know, I got that overall. I got that same impression. Well, Troma had a few people they had used in Toxic Avenger and then reused in some of their other films. That includes um, R.L. Ryan, you know, who was uh, also known as Pat Ryan, very good actor. Yeah. Well, he and he was like fantastic, and he came in. He like like all the other people we auditioned. He came in. He auditioned. We said, "Wow, this guy's really good. We want him." And we cast some of his trauma actors without ever knowing there were trauma films, without ever seeing those films. Yeah. So his givings about that are, are kind of off target. Yeah, because I thought it was interesting because I remember hearing, I think it was when um, The Burning was being filmed. I guess Madman was kind of getting close to production, and it seems like they became aware of one another. So they right. kind of 
augmented their scripts. So, you know, the whole Cropsy tale, they're not basically, you know, doing, you know, the same thing. Right. I mean, we, like I said, I mean, we, we, I'm not the type of person and the people I was working with, I don't think we were looking to rip off anything. And the fact is we never saw the other films to have that ability in the first place. Uh, you know, but I think I think what he thinks of in terms of uh, I mean, we had we had R.L. Ryan, and then we had a woman named I believe her name was Chris McNamee, who is in a couple of several films, including prominently in things like Newcomb High, who's like this outrageous looking woman with this totally wild, crazy, big, spiked punk hair, uh, and she's in one scene in Street Trash, and I think that combined with Ryan made him think, oh, they're just ripping me off. Huh. I wonder if they, I wonder if they, I wonder if they like took, held that against the actors and the, you know. I don't think so. I know I mean, the heavy I, actor, the heavy actor passed young, I believe, so I remember. Oh, right. yeah, 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 Bob Ryan. <laughs> yes. Yeah. A while back. Uh, and it's, it's a shame because I had another script I wrote apart for a man and I was. Right. I love yeah, no, he was, he was, and he was such a sweet guy. He was totally not the character he is in Street Trash. Yeah, yeah. I love that documentary, the, the Meltdown Memories. I mean, I thought that was another wonderful documentary. Um, did, did, was that even nominated for a Rondo? Or do you no, know? I don't think so. I don't. I mean, I have no idea what, when the Rondo Awards began, but I mean, this the Street Trash documentary was done back uh, sometime in the nineties. I don't remember exactly. Okay, yeah, because you know, I was even fascinated how you even talked about like Vestron. I think Dave Witten, if memory serves correct, is the name. He was a big supporter of the film. He was he was the guy that was really behind it and and felt that it was special and that it, you know you know he's the one who designed the whole initial release at doing it as midnight shows and you know and I was sort of I was in disagreement with a lot of the way they wanted to sell it at the time because they felt oh, it had cult potential. Yes, they were right, uh, but they wanted to immediately start putting it into midnight shows like it was a cult movie. And I just, I didn't feel that was the right thinking. I think cult movies sort of happen. You can't, yeah. you can't make them happen. You can't tell someone that, that a movie is a cult movie until it's proved that pretty well in advance. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, if memory serves correct, I thought it was hysterical. He was thinking of like a piece of artwork. It's like, we're going to say street trash. Then underneath it was like, we're going to put like, fuck you or something like that. That one, that was actually one of the ad campaign ideas. That was for the poster, which, which would be like street, you know, street trash. Yeah. Fuck. And that really is sort of the tone of the film. Even though I really think, think the, I mean, there are some people who think the film is like kind of mean spirited. And I could argue that there are a couple of scenes that are somewhat mean spirited. But for the most part, I think it's, I think the characters are kind of fun and lovable. Yeah. Yeah. And Despite scum of the earth. The comedy that comes through in that is so laugh out loud funny, and Jamie Lorenz always comes wow, to mind, you know, with his role. Best. And you know, but it was just, it's a wonderful cast that you basically were able. No, to No, I think play. we were lucky in that sense, in that we, I mean, uh, you know, we did a, just an open casting call, like like so many other films, and uh, you know, certain people we did bring into ourselves, like Jim Lorenz was a student at the School of Visual Arts, which is where a lot of our crew was from, where Jimmy went to school and uh, you know, we all, you know, thought he had something to begin with, but what worked in street trash is the actor that he is in most of his scenes with Tony Darrow. They just seemed to, they played off of each other really well and it got like kind of competitive and they were just, you know, and so what was originally just one scene went to like three or four scenes, including the end scene of the film, which was, you know, late uh, written late in the process. And, uh, 
you know, but I think the, all the whole cast, I mean, there's several people I think are just fucking excellent. Uh, the guy who plays, uh, Wizzy, uh, Bronson's right hand man, the, uh, in the, uh, auto graveyard. Yeah. He, he was the manager of, of the, of the wrecking yard. He was like such a, really? a totally like, un, he had never acted in his life. And I think he gives one of the best performances in the film. Yeah. Cause so another, character, another character or actor I'd like to talk about. I don't believe he's with us anymore, but he was so fucking funny in Spookies. Uh, I don't know if it was Peter. Oh, oh Peter. Peter. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, he passed away a number of years ago. Was he also a student as well, or, or how did... Uh... No, I knew Pete from uh, my friends in, in... I met him actually through my Spookies partners, uh, okay. Tom and Brendan. Uh, and Pete was like... Pete was like after we were so disappointed and, and, and bothered by what had happened to Spookies, Pete just went on like nothing happened and just kept talking up and promoting Spookies every chance he got, even though nobody was had seen it or knew what it was, even after it had been released back in the late 80s. Yeah, because one film I think that's very good that a lot of people don't talk about is uh, Igor and the Lunatics. Igor and the Lunatics. Igor and the Lunatics. If, and even though they, they shouldn't have used that spelling of Igor. Mm-hmm. That always, you know, unless you know, you always assume it's Igor. Yeah. But usually Igor is start to spell with a Y instead of an I. You're right. Promer acquired that one. Yeah. Yeah, and they, they recut it a little bit, and it's supposedly going to be coming out soon through Vinegar Syndrome. We'll see. I mean, uh, yeah, they've definitely been grabbing some of the uh, Trump titles, you know. And I just uh, did the pre-order on Rabbit Grannies. So... I'm, I'm kind of interested to see how... I how actually that like that film. I like Rabbit Grannies. <laughs> well, no, I think Rabbit Grannies... I mean, I think of, like, Peter Jackson and what he was doing in, you know, New Zealand. Like, I mean, to with, me, it has there's a, there's some of the tone of spookies in it. It's just sort of, like, frivolous and nuts and things, you know, yeah. are happening, and, and it's um, it's entertaining. And, and so many films of that sort just aren't entertaining. No, but it's wonderful how... You know, there are these little filmmakers in, you know, certain parts of the world or Europe and, and, and what they come up with. Cause I can't remember if that was like a Danish or like a Belgium. Um, I think, yeah, I know what you're saying. I think it might be French, but I don't think so. The French don't usually make films like that. Uh, yeah, I forget. Bel- Belgium sounds right. But, you know, even the effects in that for that, you know, for their time. I mean, it was amazing what you guys were doing, you know, with, you know, kind of that, you know, bubblegum, you know, technology, you know, back well, then. I mean, and the th- I, I've said this recently in a, in a few interviews that I, I, a few years ago, I look, I found, I, I watched or rewatched like almost every effects film from that, that period in the eighties from Gremlins on Gremlins is sort of the one that began that, that uh, revolution and a lot of those puppet techniques. And, uh, for the most part, uh, a lot of those films that might be better well known or at least were for years, like Ghoulies, and others uh, were uh, Spookies has better special effects, even though yeah. we had a fraction of the money they supposedly had for films like that. But that's a huge testament to the wonderful folks, you know, that it, it is. No, it's, it's, I mean, like I said, we were, we were lucky enough to get very talented makeup effects people at the start of their career. And they were, you know, just like trying to do whatever they could to, to, to do amazing work to, you know, they, they wanted to, to impress. And, uh, you know, the effects are like the one thing that was not, you know, even though, here's the thing, the effects are what put us in our original shoot on Spookies, uh, that put us uh, over budget, yeah. as happened with a lot of films, partially because we had no idea 
what to expect. We had never, you know, we had done some effect shoots on, on promos we did for other unnamed projects and things like that. But the fact is, uh, we initially, you know, we budgeted the film. I scheduled everything and effects never go right the first time. Uh, even yeah, the, you're right. You're absolutely right. Even the first 10 or 20 times. Yeah. And you just, it's always the last no take. Choice. It's the last take that's manageable that you use. No, it's like you, at times, at times, sometimes things just work and it's like, oh, great. It looks wonderful, whatever. Other times it's like you're trying to, you, you know, after every take, you're trying to figure, all right, how can we make this work? Yeah. yeah. And I, I've been in that boat where you're there at the 11th hour, you're, you're, you're doing the effect and it's like, how does that look? And it's usually like the last one. It's like that works because sometimes you're trying to figure out the coordination. It might not be working right. at first. And, 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 you know, the, 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 the better, the more you do, the better you get. And, you know, you, you need to have that right. repetition. And, and, and at that time, especially, it's not like there was, there were, you know, totally established ways of doing all these things. It was a even, testing ground. I mean, even though, know, even though it had been done, you know, in a number of films, you know, we were like, you know, we were in the dark on a lot of stuff and the effects guys were sort of, you know, experimenting and, and learning as they worked. Um, you know, I mean, the, the thing is, uh, what that really taught me is if you're doing effects, you, you need an entirely separate period in pre-production where you're doing nothing practically, but working on the effects and making them work in front of a camera before you get onto the film set. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that's what I'm doing with these gentlemen here for, are the wicked hollows, you know. I mean, it's right, kind of, right. I mean, Spooky's a situation where every time we did a scene, it was like you know we and we and something had to happen. This is all right. This is the first time. Hopefully, it will work. And sometimes it did, and frequently it did not. Yeah, I always assume Spooky's to have a giant, like a lot of the budget went. I always assumed that that's where a lot of the budget went into the special makeup. Well, but, here's the thing. I found that. um as far as practical effects goes, I mean, just like with everything, with almost any movie, big or small, most of the money for anything goes into salaries. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's it's the yeah. actual materials to do those effects were a small portion of the budget. You know, the time spent, the number of hours that were necessary to get this stuff to happen. Now, keep in mind also, we were, everybody was being severely underpaid. We were all yeah. working ridiculous hours on, on like a six-day-a-week schedule. And, uh, you know, we just, uh, you know, a lot of it came down to you just had to hope things worked. And they almost, eventually, almost everything worked out uh, pretty well, more or less. But um, I, I, I would not want to go through that again. I would, I would demand anything I work on in the, at any point in the future that has any kind of special effects, of, of practical effects of that nature. I would demand, or it's like, all right, this, this has to be perfect now. Yeah. Was there any big effects that you just did it didn't look right? You pulled out of the flick, cut it, or wanted to have it didn't put in the film? Not so much. I mean, the more disappointing factor is that uh, the woman who took over the film and shot the new scenes and totally re-edited it um, cut down all the monster the monster scenes along with the other. I mean, I can understand cutting out uh, dramatic scenes or dialogue or whatever, but why would you cut down these monster scenes? That makes no sense because the um, monsters are supposed to sell the product. When you right. start eliminating that, then you're changing up too many. Look, I mean, you mentioned the spider scene before. I think that's the best monster, and that's my favorite scene. But in the original film, it was so much better. It was so much longer. Um, but if, if if you actually look at that stuff and time it, I mean, the, the spider scene 
the actual effects portions of it are, are over oh. in, in like 30 seconds. Yeah. And didn't John make like four or five different heads or something? I mean, that's kind of really elaborate. Whole spider body with legs yeah. and all this. I mean, I don't know why none of this stuff got seen. And it's it's such a shame because you hear, you know, effects artists invest months and months, you know, of creating beautiful pieces of sculpture. And they only get seen for only a matter of seconds, if not fractions of seconds, you know, when it comes to screen time. Well, I mean, a lot of times it has to serve the film. So it's, okay. it's more important that the scene work than that something be seen. But in this case, this was just haphazardly cut. And for the most part, I mean, I think, our, you know, the reason most of our stuff was cut out was to insert her stuff. So she was able to grab a co-directing credit. Have you guys ever had any interaction? It is. We haven't. She was contacted uh, when, when the documentary was being made. Oh, no, pardon me. They couldn't find her when the documentary was being made. They found her eventually and managed to, to get in touch. Um, I was at one time offered a chance to do a podcast uh, sort of confronting her. Uh-huh. But but I, I – and I really wanted to, and I but I had really mixed feelings about it, meaning I would have nothing nice to say to this person. I know nothing she can say is going to make – Amends and nothing. She and she's probably going to continue to lie because I have, I have a lot of information about her. I mean, I, I knew people who knew her and knew knew what was going on during the stuff that she shot at that time. Uh, so I have like exact quotes from her that I wrote down, etc. And uh, beyond that, I mean, in, in subsequent years, I've heard she more or less pulled the same routine on other films where she wormed her way into things. I mean, she was, she was a net, uh, not a net, uh, Erica Havens. It was a, a fairly big eighties porn actress. I've heard the name. And she wanted to, uh, she was doing some editing and she wanted to direct and etc. And she, uh, she initially got approached about editing the film after we had left. And, uh, you know, and we, we had a rough cut. I mean, all we needed to do was add our optical effects big, in the big climactic scenes. There was a lot of work to do there, but, but that was all that was missing. And that would have been so amazing if you had those ghosts in there. Cause that's what I loved about the documentary. I convinced Michael <laughs> Lee that this was like, you know, the film was like unsalvageable unless she shot enough footage to, uh, constitute 50% of the movie. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like it's just a tough situation, you know. It all, all I can say is she, she was the one. He apparently trusted her, where he was like constantly on our backs and not trusting us. I think uh, I think the fact that he was screwing her most likely uh, while this was going on had something to do with this. That's probably a big part of it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, the, the quote, I don't know if you know. There's a filmmaker called Roger Watkins. Yep. Who, it films like Last House on a Dead End Street and other exploitation around that time. And I saw an email from someone who was corresponding with him where he goes into detail about how she came onto this film I was doing and then she started fucking everybody. And then the next thing I know, I'm off the film. And happened. I mean, it's really interesting, you know, the, the trials and tribulations. You know. If she wants, she can come and sue me for all this libelous stuff I'm saying. <laughs> but, you know, it's just uh, the, the unfortunate shit you have to deal with when it comes to losing something and then having someone else finish it, when you basically were there from the inception, you know, the writing process, trying to make it, and then where things got so unbearable, unfortunately, you guys had to walk away. I'm sure Michael Lee is basically thinking, we need to finish this fucking thing. And then, you know, that whole series of circumstances comes in just to finish the movie, but it's not, 
you know, this, um, I mean, it, it does definitely feels like two movies, you know, because, because, it, because one has nothing to do with the other. Exactly. Uh, and she, and she wrote that stuff in so that like, she thought it would intercut with scenes that were already there to make them look as if they were actually connected. And it's, it's very obvious where, you know, one thing ends and the other begins. And, uh, I mean, I don't know what to say because that's, um, it it just seems like, like such. I mean, if somebody if if somebody had come to me and said, "Oh, we need you to to finish a film or something," I'd, at that time or as a filmmaker, I, I'd take the opportunity. I'd be glad to. Yeah. But I would somehow I would somehow also consider who were the original filmmakers, what were their intentions. Exactly. Yeah. And actually, real quick, who was the guy who um, the gentleman the gentleman who played um, the elder uh, who was kind of coordinating, you know, all these different. Oh, you know, Creon. I have no idea. That's the only film credit he has. That's the only thing I can find about him on the internet, and he's dead. He so, was so interesting to watch, just the way he carried himself in the movie. And I just, you know, um, I, I thought we would see more of him, but, I, you know, we, we didn't. <laughs> it happens. He was great, though. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, I'm not a good person to ask about the added scenes because most of them I, I view with a very dim uh, yeah. Um, although um, I have written the spooky sequel, which I'm hoping to start uh, fundraising yeah. soon, and Creon is a major character, even though he's never seen on screen. Very cool. I mean, that's wonderful that you know, keeping the you know spirit of you know the. Well, the... I, I mean, to tell the truth, a lot of what's in this new script is sort of mocking the first what happened to the first film, and yeah. and. Uh, it's it's uh it actually t- it takes place in the town where the mansion supposedly is. Yeah. And there's a whole plot involving uh, a ruthless corporation that's taking over the town and uh so there's a, a little bit of a poke in it, you know at what happened to us although it's, I I love it. Say, it sounds a little meta but you know it sounds like it's Well, well the, the real point is it's um it's the kind of film that myself and and especially my partner Tom Doran who I continue he passed away in 2017, and I continued to work with him for years after, and we've developed lots of projects, almost made films a few times. I mean, funding would come along and just slip away, and this is the story of all filmmakers, as, as yeah. you probably know. Yeah. Um, but uh, he, he for years, I mean, he was he was far more bitter about the experience than I was. He was one of the directors. He had, you know, creatively, it was a little bit more of a, a stab in the heart with everything that happened. And uh, he, for years, just would say, I, I'm, even if, if somebody came to me and said, I'll give you money, I would never write a sequel to Spookies. I never, ever want to hear about it again. I will never do that. A few years later, he calls me up out of the blue and says, well, I wrote the outline for a sequel to Spookies. <laughs> <laughs> and it was surprisingly good, and it took the whole thing. It, it basically just, let's put it this way, there's like, one scene that sort of does connect it, and there's and there's mention of the name Creon, but beyond that, it's just a an insane asylum of a horror movie. That's exactly how I've described it to somebody. It's an insane asylum of a monster movie, is what I said. That sounds phenomenal. I love how you're my cameo. I'm definitely intrigued. You know, well, I mean, we want to take what we feel people have you know mentioned you know time and time again uh, is is what impressed them in Spookies, and yeah. Yeah, there's monsters. Yeah, there's lots of monsters. There's like more monsters than you can deal with, and you've never seen any of them before. Yeah, I think you might be able to get John Dodds to come out and do some stuff. I, for hope, 
I've spoken to John. Uh, now, I first spoke to John when I first started this script like a couple of years ago. And I spoke to him at the time and he said, well, I, I'm just too busy. I don't think I could be involved. He's like, he's been for a number of years doing practical effects for Broadway shows. Stuff like yeah. Beauty and the Beast. Uh, he did Young Frankenstein on stage and all, anything that involves what would be formerly have been considered movie special effects. He's the go, the go to guy. Uh, the last thing I heard, and this is over a year ago, he was taking, he was going with these productions around Europe as they were uh, opening up in various cities. So uh, I don't know if he's still too busy, but I, I, I will talk to him again before we go into production. But um, I've got uh, Gabe Bartalos and uh, Vincent Guastini, who were on our original production, who both were like delighted to hear that there would be a spooky sequel. And so uh, I'm not worried about the effects part of things. Although, I mean, what I've written, I feel is like insanely ambitious. It's like, uh, it's like, uh, it, it's like 12 monster movies packed into one. I love it. It sounds great. That's the word I was looking for earlier was spooky is ambitious. Very ambitious with all those. Well, I know. I mean, I, I, I have everybody I've given this script to, especially like the makeup people. I said, well, uh, you're going to probably think I'm nuts, but <laughs> I'm just, I just want to make the best, the most amazing movie of this sort that we can possibly make. And this is in part, I feel a responsibility to my partner, Tom, who uh, I felt was really just a brilliant creator and who never got his due and uh, who, uh, you know, came out of spookies with sort of like, you know, a crushed heart in, in many ways and, and kept trying to recover from that for years. But, um, I think uh, I think this is different than anything that's been around for a while. It's 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 got elements of maybe stuff like critters or gremlins in it, but it's different. It's more expansive. It's very character driven. It's I I actually I tell people now, oh, it's an adult movie. Uh, yeah, you know, and I simply mean that in the sense that it's Spooky's ultimately as a result of what Michael Lee wanted us to do, and then being transformed again into another movie. It's a lot more simple-minded. It's it's a dumb horror movie, and I have yeah. to you know admit that certainly this is not a dumb horror movie. Actually, because it's oh. funny how you mentioned like critters. Do we ever approach by people like that might not have seen, seen like the artwork and be like spookies, and they might think like critters, ghoulies, might get the impression that it's kind well, of like. Where, a... Michael wanted to call it spookies from like almost the minute we met him. He kept saying, "Well, why don't we call it spookies?" Right. Uh, you know, he 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 would he would do that all the time. He would like out of nowhere come up with like ridiculous titles and say, "Well, why don't we call it this?" And we'd say, "All right, well, what does that mean?" He'd say, "I don't know." His contribution in the documentary where he's like, "Kids love farting," and when he basically threw that concept in there, oh no, 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 he loves farting. Oh, he loves farting. <laughs> he loves farting. Yeah, he was, oh, pull my finger all the time. He was oh. he was the guy. Pull my finger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he just, and supposedly what happened with that is it was just originally put in there as a joke by the sound man, by the guy doing the sound mix, and because he knew Michael thought farts were so funny. And then Jeannie Joseph, who had directed, you know, the other footage, saw that, and she was, like, so upset she, like, walked out and didn't come back till the next day. Um, But the fact is... uh, I didn't find this out until later years when I listened to the actual music soundtrack. Like, I would say like 95% of the farting is part of the music track. Oh, man. That was just like one of those scenes that just like, I love the visual of the Muckman, but the audio, it's like, 
what is this? And it, it just it, uh, well, here's what it, you, you got to imagine that it also continues to bug me because I frequently hear from people like the only thing they want to talk about in the movie is the, what they call the farting zombies. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that bothers me because I hate thinking like, is this really where most people are? This is like the only thing they can relate to. No, well, I mean to me, it's it's that John Dodd spider creature. You know, it's you know, there's there's so many amazing elements that I just think. Um, Make this movie truly a wonderful piece of art. Right. I mean, that, that, that's that scene, and you know, we 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 refer to them as the Muck Men, and, and when we and that was what was in the script, and and what we referred to them on the set as, uh, and somehow that made it. That's that's still what they're referred to as generally. You know, mm-hmm. that, that that wound up on the on the the boxes and in the marketing, so that which was kind of surprising. But uh, you know, the fact is uh, that that scene actually was like really kind of upsetting and, and like so, somewhat scary. They were, you know, they, it was, you know, again, it was about twice as long as what's there. There were three muck men. You only see two in the scene. Um, but it was, uh, it was, you know, they were menacing. I mean, they're not, they're not someone you'd want to meet in a dark basement. Sure. Uh, is it true that Gabe actually picked up Michael Lee's car or something like that? We trying to get away from set once and he wouldn't let him. Um, I have heard this. I didn't see it. Um, Gabe was pretty strong at the time. <laughs> oh, he's a big monster of a man. He's a great guy. I mean, yeah, real, yeah, all I, yeah I mean, uh, I can imagine him being that pissed off. Yeah. <laughs> that was the thing. Michael seemed to have this idea that, all right, well, I'm paying your salaries. I therefore own you. And that's how he treated people. I hate that mentality. I've, I've, I've worked with some people, unfortunately, and it's it's, it's difficult because – it's like, well, what do you do? It's like you can either walk away from the project, you know, and not get paid, or you can create and endure is the only word I can think of, and just hopefully finish the best of your abilities and see what happens. But it just sucks for all you guys, you know, considering how so many people had to walk away dealing with the insanity of uh, this guy who just didn't make things easy on you. Yeah, and I don't, you know, I mean, looking back at it, it, it's possible things could have been worked out at the time and we could have remained on the film. But it was, you know, we were, uh, part of it, I mean, if I'd been older and had a little more experience and sort of had a, an idea of how to handle situations like this, I think we could have helped helped to, to to fix things to some extent. But at the same time, I mean, he was just impossible. No matter what we did to please him, he couldn't be pleased. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but you're right. I mean, you evolve, you know, as a filmmaker, you figure out maybe years later how you could have handled things, you know, differently in retrospect. And it's just that learning experience that you get from one production to the next. I mean, it doesn't help that, like, when you're in the midst of something like that, as a creator, you're just very emotionally involved. So you're not able to, like, distance yourself and just look at it rationally. Yeah. You know, if something happens, if you feel you've been wronged, you're going to react to that. If someone is, you know, giving you a hard time, you're going to give them something in return um you know but it 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 had to be pretty bad for us to to have walked off because i i i put up with like essentially like abuse from him every day for a year before that yeah yeah i mean i uh when we finished recording if you guys are interested i can tell you a story because i work with someone i just just say it bill will bleep the name <laughs> We've all three, all three of us do. I, I worked with about um, people, mad um, people. A director many moons ago, my yeah. very first movie, uh, and it actually starred uh, Michael Berryman. And mm-hmm. the director was actually by the name of Andrew Getty of the famous Getty Family Fortune. Right. And um, he was 
definitely an eccentric. Um, you know, he's, here's this guy. He's, you know, it's just, I mean, the, the Getty Museum, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, quite a lineage, you know, his family, you know, right. and, um, it was just a, <laughs> a situation where things were just a little extreme that I just, uh, was one of the first times I ever walked off set. And, um, the movie eventually came out about 15 years later. It was retitled The Evil Within. And, um, you know, but you oh, know, huh? I know the title. Yeah. I've heard. Yeah. The title. So it, it plus, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's, good, it's fun. Yeah. But you know, when you, when you make something and you devote so much to it and then, you know, for reasons you have to walk away, you know, it just, uh, it can fuck with your psyche considering how invested you were or are at the time, you know, and, um, conceptualizing, um, and then from there figuring out how to bring this stuff to fruition and, you know, you're creating stuff as you go. And next thing you know, it's like, you know, when, when is the, you know, the straw going to break the camel's back here? Cause you almost know that it's coming sooner or later. And unfortunately when that does happen, it's like, all right, I wish you the best. Sorry guys. But you know, I think Frank put it the best, you know, artists are kind of sensitive, you know what I mean? And, you know, unfortunately, I, I, you know, it's a good thing, fortunate and unfortunate. That's why they're good artists. You know what I mean? But I I think we're, you know, I've, I've gotten a thicker skin over the years because I I also do construction. You you do after you get enough abuse. You do. Yeah. Or you, you know, you endure enough, you know, you get a thicker skin. Paying them dues, paying them dues. Sometimes sometimes you can have those screaming arguments. Yeah. And then it's like, do you see where I'm coming from? And when they're like, I do. And I said, do you understand why I'm so fucking angry here? I do. I do you think we could actually remedy this or are we going to cut ties like this? And it's like, if they're smart, they're like, let's see if we can fix this. And if, but if they don't have that approach, then you part, unfortunately, not under the best intentions. And as an artist, special makeup effects artist, you know, filmmaker, I like having those people I can work with, but sometimes, you know, those bridges might unfortunately get burned. And, but, but that's part of, I think, evolving as a filmmaker, you know, it's hard to have longevity in this industry without burning a few bridges. And I think that's oh, all I, business. You every, know? Everybody has these types of war stories. I mean, there's always going to be yeah. people. I mean, there's almost always somebody on any production who is a huge problem that you did not expect. We can't help burning bridges, even if you like you'd be in tra- you're being the the good guy about the situation, a good girl about the situation. It's like eh, once somebody feels like they're wrong, you're automatically the bad guy. It's just, you know like with the creative thing, you know, it's a, it's 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 a sensitive vibe, sensitive vibe. Bill just he just became one with the elements, he turned into mist. Spookies just took him away. Yeah, <laughs> but Frankie, no, I mean. It- the thing is that you always wind up in, in some kind of a, a hassle of some sort. I mean, to tell the truth, one of the prime areas I've always found is a problem on any production is that there's always like one or two actors who are for one reason or another a problem. And because they're in the film and because they were, you've already shot with them, you have to sort of kowtow to whatever their demand is because they are in the film already and you can't afford to shoot new scenes. Yeah. Well, it's tough. It's so, there's a leveraged game. You know, it's... It's a crazy deal. I remember Eli Roth once said in an interview, he named off a couple things that everybody should do when they, when they're making a movie. And one, one of the things was, 
the first day you see people like talking, not working, you know, you, you, you fire them in front of everybody and uh, it lets them know you're not afraid to do it. You know what I mean? And uh, sometimes you've got yeah, Beyond it. which, if, if your production is, is put together right, you're not going to have people with time to just stand around and talk. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in art. You're not doing something. Well, there's always something else you can do. For sure. Yeah. Bill, you you take, you take a note? Ah! Yeah. It's just, no, but you're right, though. Absolutely. Because, I mean, it's almost like that first penguin um, method where the first penguin that dives into the water is the one that gets eaten. Yeah. And, you know, and then, and then you realize all the other penguins like, huh, we better watch our backs. But, you know, I think if certain filmmakers are smarter than others, you know, sometimes you can pull someone behind doors, actually have that dialogue that you need okay. to, and then they part ways. Because if, if you're explosive or a megalomaniac, I mean, I love those old school megalomaniac directors because oh, yeah. there's, you know, the vitality of, say, like no, the George Fox. There a lot of my favorite directors are that type of director, which only means that they're perfectionists. They really, yeah. really care about what they're doing. The movie, whatever the movie is they're working on at that moment is more important than anything else. Exactly. And, and George Cosmatos, who I think is a brilliant director, you know, he could be kind of loud and abrasive, but, you know, his intentions are pure, you know, because he, he knows where he's coming from. But when I heard the story of he basically tried laying into Stan Winston, he threw it right back at him. And I say, uh, good for Stan, because sometimes you need to know when and where to stand your ground. Well, you need to do that. Plus, it's like, I mean, a lot of directors, uh, a power hungry or power mad type of director who's, a, you know, who's difficult to work with. He may be brilliant or he may be a complete creative dud. You know, mm-hmm. that the the ability to, to do something good has nothing to do with their temperament in most cases. Yeah. Um, I think... Uh, I mean, I treat, I try, anytime I work with people, I try and treat everybody like they're, they're a friend and of great value to me. And they, because they are. It's because it's war when you go to a movie. Yes, yes. I say that all the time. And and we talked about this, of how we're in the trenches together. We're making this thing for the integrity of the production. We're, you know, just very gung-ho. Pardon pardon the sound there. But, uh, you know, when things start to fray or deviate, then that's when, uh-oh, you know, what's going on here? And let's let, let's reassess real quick because sometimes it's hard to reassess when you're already, you know, deep in the nitty and gritty. And, um, you know, sometimes you're lucky if you can pull yourself back a little bit and reassess and be like, all right, we're going to make some changes or let's just get through this. Yeah, adapt. Adapt for productivity. Yeah, I mean, my, the the only way I've found to combat all this shit ultimately is planning and, and thinking yeah. things out in advance yeah. and going to the set, like knowing precisely what you're doing and making, having communicated to everybody working there, here's what we're doing. Um, I mean, I, I think that's a problem on a lot of productions. I mean, people go on to a, a set, you know, uh, after having worked for a few days, they have no idea what... You know, what are we shooting today? What's this? What's going on? Everyone should know what's going on. I feel like everyone should be focused on, yeah, these people, we're having this a dialogue scene and here's what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah, we're special affecting today and that's all we're doing. And, you know, and... Um, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think, I think planning and communication are probably one of the two most vital things when it comes right, to right. producing. And it's, or, and it's one of these things, I'm just, that it's like... Uh, 
that's usually the cutting edge difference between uh, something coming off reasonably effectively and things working and staying somewhat close to budget and stuff. Because if you don't plan, if you don't have every anticipation of what's going to go wrong to begin with, then all that and more will go wrong. Yeah. And it's even frustrating because sometimes you need to think, what's the worst case scenario here? How can we avoid that? What can we do as a backup just in case? So the planning just, you know, I mean, it's just, I mean, I, I had a day shooting spookies. We're on this big estate, right? And we've got two houses on it. One is the mansion. And then there's what was called the carriage house, which when the place was built was uh, where the ster- the servants and the horses stayed, right? You know, and it reconverted. So we had people, you know, living in there for, for a couple of months. And uh, we, uh, we pretty much, uh, oh gosh, I've lost my train of thought here. <laughs> yeah. The- uh, yeah, uh, go ahead. Oh, the house, the car, where, where the where the people would stay. Yeah, the carriage house and the, the mansion you're talking about. Uh, no, no, I had some greater overall point to make that I, I oh. because I'm thinking of like several things simultaneously. Maybe I'll get back to it, but uh, but the, the the real fact is that um, I I tend to be a very organized person. I mean, I. I'll, I'll go the distance here of saying that if either of my other partners had 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 to be the was wound up being the central producer of Spookies, I don't think they could have done the job that I did because I just I'm naturally organized and I really feel a a, a compulsion to bring things to completion and and for everybody to to walk walk out of a situation as uh, as happy with things as possible. Um, were, you, were you always like that growing up? Like very much? I think it's something that I had a skill for for a while. And when we started, uh, when I started working with those guys and we st- we all wanted to direct and we all wrote. But uh, I think uh, I had come from a background where I, I just, uh, I, don't, I don't know what it was that, that prepped me for it originally necessarily. Uh, but I seem to have the organizing skills. I seem, you know, I always wound up being, I think the fact that one of my partners didn't type and I did helped helped me to get a lot of that type of stuff uh, in my corner, but um, yeah. I uh, I mean I, I look back now and you know I'm I'm really ultimately despite all the bullshit that I went through and the fact that it uh, you know basically screwed me for a number of years in my career and made uh, everything a lot more difficult. Um, I like where things are right now. I have, you know, films out there. People know the films. People know who I am. I've actually become a a, a well-known name to a, many, a lot of horror events, and that oh, means yeah. an enormous amount. I did my first guest spot at a convention a couple of months ago, and I'm planning to do it. I was just going to ask that. Yeah. What was that like, you know, to kind of have these movies? It was great. It was fun. I realized like all, from the first day I was there is that it really wasn't the, the type of convention that's best for me. It was, um, I would call it a, a horror lifestyle convention, meaning it was like very, it was, focus was really cosplay and, uh, you know, people uh, coming dressed in, I mean, let's put it this way. Every fr- every group that you can think of, uh, punks, emos, goths, uh, trans guys, every, every, anybody who likes to dress up as something was there. Yeah. And that's more of an element. And there were hard, you know, everything was hard merchandise and stuff, but it wasn't like the conventions I'm used to where it's like very movie oriented. It's very, it's very much real fans who know yeah. horror at the bottom. 
And it must be it must be scary how some of these fans probably know more the mo- more about the movies than you, than you do in certain circles. Okay, I, I tend to know a fair amount about my own movies. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, but this was a case where a lot of people didn't have a clue who I was or what Spookies or Street Trash were. You know, I mean, that changed a little bit. They uh, the convention uh, got together a uh, we did a screening of Spookies at a local theater, so those were. And that, and that was combined uh, people from the, the convention itself, and then I guess just local residents in Knoxville, Tennessee, where we were. And that was pretty well attended. And, th- and that's where I got the people who who I recognized as, as the real fans. Yeah. Yeah, but, I, but I'm looking forward to doing more this year. I just, I recently, I, I, after uh, having been trying to get somebody for a while, I just got a rep. So I've got somebody now who's going to be going out uh, for me to, to get me oh, yeah. uh, gigs. And uh, this is important to me, too, as I'm looking at trying to make the spooky sequel. Yeah, well, um, you know, I'm friendly with some folks up here in Massachusetts in the convention scene. So, you know, if you're at all interested in, you know, maybe checking out some of the conventions up I've here. Had, um, do, you, do you know uh, Dustin Wurtenberg? I, I've heard the name. I don't There's know. a podcast called The Barons or something like that. I forget exactly what it's called, but I've become friendly with him. He's been very helpful to me. He wants to, he wants to get me into the whole, you know, Massachusetts horror scene. And I, uh, you know, I appreciate people like this who are, who have connections already and know people in some of these regions. So maybe I'll, I, I may talk to you about that again soon. And if yeah. any region out there listening, man, find your local horror convention and get Frank there. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, I get, I get requests from fans all the time, all over the place. And I really, I still haven't made, uh, you know, I mean, I haven't hit like a solid hardcore horror convention as far as I'm concerned. I uh, I was invited to, and then I was uh, uninvited to the Living Dead convention in Monroeville. Yeah. Because apparently, about that. apparently I had had an online argument with one of the organizers like four years previously. <laughs> and, and then I got invited. Uh, they booked me. They made like a banner for me. And then I got told I couldn't come. <laughs> yeah, it's too very clicky, unfortunately. That's what I've heard. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a shame because I'm one of the few zombies of any note that you can actually see and recognize on screen that hasn't gone to one of these events. You know, yeah. and I was being told by fans, "Oh, well, they've got like this guy who was like the twelfth zombie from the left in a crowd scene," and oh, you know, yeah. first time I went to a horror convention ever, I was getting autographs from people that were like making sandwiches on the set of Dawn of the Dead. You know what I mean? <laughs> You know what I mean? I was buying, like, I was just, like, getting, yeah, you know what I mean? Anything that was even closely related to it, I was like, here's my money, let's do it. You know what well, I mean? how you mentioned the Monroeville, uh, the very first official horror con I went to was when I was attending Tom Savini's at the time. Right, and, right. And went to that show. And I remember meeting um, the, uh, uh, what was his name? They were married. Uh, she was the uh, nurse zombie, and he was the escalator zombie. Clayton Hill. Uh, right. Very, very nice guy. And, um, you know, it's, it's just fascinating what, how people just wanted to be one of the undead, especially like if you were a Pittsburgher, you know, cause a, a lot of them truly love George and just wanted to, you know. George, I mean, I, I went to the set, I, I interviewed like a lot of people for a magazine article and, uh, George just impressed me as, first of all, he impressed me as being like a totally prepared, very on top of things filmmaker. You know, meaning he just, he was very aware of what he was doing. As soon as he finished a shot, it was like, all right, now we get to this. And and I've been on sets where directors are sitting there with no real idea of what the next shot is. Yeah. 
And then uh, Tom Savini. I mean, I, I, I got, I, and I haven't seen Tom since this time, right? But I, I spent a couple of hours talking to him. You know, he was a he was a big fan of Lon Chaney Senior, like I am. So we talked oh, about that. Yeah. Even though he named his son Lon. Yeah, I, I uh, you know, and what's what's really great is that um, this is sort of, I mean, the the horror community just continues to grow, and there's a a real. Uh, sense of support that I've gotten from so many people. Uh, you know, it's like, I never realized I had this much support. You know, I wish my late partner was here to see this because he really, he deserved to be a part of it. Did he get to see any of the success of Spookies? Not really. He, he passed away in 2017. The Blu-ray came out like two years later. Yeah. Uh, That's you know, something- it, some of the most heartbreaking stuff is you can hear that stuff. There are these movies that we all love and like the people that make it sometimes don't even ever get to find out how much it's loved. You know what I mean? Sad. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, it's a great thing to, to see it. Um, like understand the first time I saw spookies in a theater, it was in times square. There were like five people in the theater. Yeah. And, and I mean, it was a big deal. It was playing in times square, but right. still, um, but seeing it recently with fans, with fans, people I know that are having a good time and enjoying it. Uh, I mean, the first time I saw it with, with an actual crowd of fans who were cheering and laughing. And, and, I, and I just, at the end of the screen, I came up and I said, you like Spookies? And they were like, yeah, yeah. And they're, you know, they're cheering. And, and I said, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> Was that on the documentary that you guys did in there that they recorded by chance? Is that, you mean, is that in there? Yeah. Um, no, no, no. We have some other scenes of us at at one of the screenings that that we went to that that is in there. So, uh, so um, how many years ago would you say was this? You know, like actually seeing it with you know an audience, you know, and, and getting that fanfare and reception. It was. Uh, I'm trying to think here. Maybe 2018, 19. Um, I can tell you exactly. It's when the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie came out. And I know this because as I'm standing in line there, I look over and I, and there's another line for another movie, which was Guardians of the Galaxy. And I look over and I realize I'm standing next to Frank Conniff of uh, Mystery Science Theater. Uh-huh. Right? He's Frank. Very cool. Right? And I was like, oh, wow. And I just said, I said, I just want to tell you, you've given me so much enjoyment over the years. And I, and I, and I do this all the time with celebrities. I don't, I'm not interested in autographs, but if I like somebody and I feel like they've entertained me or they've done something that I respect, I just want to thank them for, for what they did. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, and so I chatted with him for a little while and then, and then I went in to see Spookies with, with the crowd that had, uh, gone into the theater already. Um, but that, that was a great experience. It, it put a new perspective on it for me. Yeah, like we were saying before, there's certain, like, experiences that each filmmaker kind of gets to. It's like, like earlier when you go into the store, you get to pick, you pick your movie off the rack for the first time, watching the movie with an audience for the first time. You know what I mean? These are beautiful. Yeah, well, I found, I mean, I, I, I was lucky enough. I had a really good filmmaking class when I was in high school and I made a couple of award winning films. Yeah. And at that point, I, that's what sort of hooked me to some extent is that, I love being able to have made the film, done all the hard work, and then sitting there with an audience that was reacting to everything the way it was intended. Yeah. That's what I tell people. Did you go to NYU? No, I went to the School of Visual Arts. Oh, very amazing school as well. Right, which is where I met Roy Frumkis, who eventually wrote Street Trash. Yeah. 
That's what I tell people when they, you know, you come on set and it's, it's, you know, a lot of running around and stuff and that you're like deal with the headaches of not having loot and stuff. And you go, that's just how good it is when it works, when you're watching it, when it's done and you're watching it to go through all the madness of making it. I mean, that's how good the, 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 the you know, the overall is uh, to go through the whole thing. Because people go, fuck, dude, you deal with a lot of issues. You deal with a lot of issues making these movies for 50 cents. You know what I mean? No, well, I can't, the reaction I get now from people who have seen the documentary will, you know, they'll say, gee, I, I feel so sorry for you guys. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be the victim of, but yeah, exactly. To... That's the first thing you don't want to hear because it, yes, there definitely are tragic opponents, but it's like, but it should be celebrated. But it's just, you know, learning the stuff behind the curtain, you know, of, you know, what went into everything and just all the different variables that you went up against. I mean, it feels like a beautiful tell-all being able to just, you know, from these different folks saying what they're saying and just get it on the slab. And it's just, it's entertaining. I mean, you, you know, it's a, you, you can learn so much, I think, you know, as a filmmaker watching, you know, movies that, um, you know, maybe like a B movie rather than an A movie, you know, cause you know, it, it, in, yeah, you might have aspirations to be Martin Scorsese or whatever, but if you can watch like the Charlie Bean catalog, you can figure out some stuff. I, I also don't think, I don't think the budget is what makes a good movie. I think uh, you can make a great movie probably at any level. You just have to understand what your limitations are yeah. and try to make up for them in every way that you can. I mean, you know, most of the big directors made low budget movies at the starts of their careers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I think, um, you know, and nowadays, I mean, it's, it's, you know, the fact that you can now make a movie for, you know, literally a few thousand dollars and, you know, of, of whatever quality. <laughs> um, but the fact is that, uh, I like that it's become more of a level playing field like that. I like the fact that people who would never, you know, 20 years ago, there would never be a chance they'd get anywhere near making their own movie have that opportunity now. Yeah. Monkey Man Alex, do you have any questions? Because I feel like Maddie and I are still on the ate. show. He ate a monkey, he's an ape, all right? Sure respect. <laughs> ape, okay, respect. sorry. Mr. Ape Man Alex Hawk, do you have any questions? Because I feel like Maddie and I are stealing all the questions over here. Really? Oh, I mean, it. I'm just enjoying the conversation. I mean, uh, the fact is, it's true, uh, as, as, as you guys all have been talking about. Uh, trying to uh, create a film, especially uh, like any art form, is extremely, I mean, taxing, but also the most rewarding thing that you can do because you are bringing out like a part, of, like not to be too sentimental, but a part of your soul, you know, mm-hmm. into what you what you're making, and. Unfortunately, when you're trying to do that, you'll have a lot of other people who are just, you know, looking for the end result, which is, you know, how much money can I make off of this? What can I get out of this instead of the love of actually creating and telling a story? I I know, and that that can be a blessing and a curse because, I mean, the fact is I should have given up movie making a long time ago. I mean, like I told you, Tom and I worked together and kept trying to mount new projects for years. Um, it would have helped if we had felt Spookies turned out well and that we could use it as something to stand on at the time. But um, not we realized, both of us realized at a certain point that we just, we, 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 we didn't just want to make movies. It's like this was like central to our our mindset. And this is, you know, 
I, I, I would find myself and Tom, the same thing with him. We would, we would start coming up with ideas or, or, or start writing something and we couldn't stop ourselves. It was just like, Oh, I got an idea. And Tom would do this all the time. He'd call me up and say, Oh, I got a great idea, but you can have it. I'll never get to it. (laughs) I always refer to it as the pilot, that creative pilot, that fire, that, that furnace that's in, that's from within that inspires the creativity. And I think, you know, to have, you know, to work, you know, in this industry for a while. I mean, you know, you'll have your hills and valleys, but, you know, I think once that, when that flame goes out, then it's like you might as well walk away from the industry. I I mean, to be honest, I, you know, we got to a point where we just said, all right, you know, what would you be doing if you weren't doing this? And Tom was like, well, if I spent time and and worked at it, I probably could have become a very good commercial artist because he was, he was a very good artist. He was a uh, you know, he could draw, paint, sculpt, all, all these things. But he said, but the filmmaking was what I really wanted to do. And that sort of got in the way of almost anything else. And because uh, I, so many projects uh, just never wind up getting made, it's, you know, it's, he, um, you know, he resigned himself to that. And so did I to just uh, realizing that, all right, we may just continue doing this. We may get another shot to do another, you know, another film. We may never get a shot to do another film. But we couldn't stop. You know, we, we at one time had a, a serious discussion about whether whether or not we should get lobotomies and just put an end to everything. <laughs> it worked, I think. It's not a bad idea. Yeah, I feel you. I think Matt already got one. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think wearing that mask a little too long is giving you a lobotomy, dude. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Who's in the or, or maybe we would have gotten our lobotomies and then somebody would have come along and said, oh, finally, you figured it out. This is how you crack all Exactly, yeah. It's like, oh, now we have the money. And it's like the day after. And it's like, time is so bizarre how timing works, you know, on projects where if you held on for just a little bit longer, the funds would be there. And then you turn your back and it's like, but it's just... You know, the whole, you know, frustration. You know, I mean, we came to the point where we just realized it was not like we were going to stop having these thoughts of, of, of doing things or creating certain things. I mean, and this happens to me all the time anyway. I mean, I'm just, you know, ideas, an idea comes into my head. Suddenly I'm writing something in my head as I'm just walking down the street and it's, it, it, it can't be stopped. It can't, it's just spontaneous. I'm not trying to make it happen. It happens. Yeah. It is, it's, it's wonderful. You can capture that lightning image or whatever it is that it is it is and it's but it's also tremendously frustrating in that you want to communicate this to other people you know you i mean i see stuff in my mind and i think oh wow i would be delighted if i saw a movie with this in it and and i think anybody who saw what i have in my head would be delighted but getting it out of my head and onto the screen is another story right it's true i feel that so i feel well you know and I'm a big believer in, in entertainment value. I feel like, uh, you know, I, I look back when I was making student films uh, and I got a sense of audiences reacting as I wanted to certain things I did. I just realized that the, the, the best thing you can do probably is to entertain people. That That's what they'll really be grateful to you for. Oh, I, think, yeah. I agree with you. I mean, storytelling, entertaining. I mean, I think we get into this business because we want to entertain and whether yeah. if you're just talking in front of an audience, I, I just this past weekend, I actually just did a one man show at a horror convention, uh-huh. talking over my 20 years in the special makeup effects industry. Right. And it, 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 it's not too dissimilar from like that versus something I finished, something I'm working on. You see it with an audience because 
far as I'm concerned, I'm the worst theater goer in the world, especially if it's something I'm affiliated with. I'm pacing back and forth. I'm smoking like a maniac, Pepto-Bismol on one hand. But if people are entertained and they enjoy it, then it feels like, okay. Oh, exactly. You can just relax. You can relax and let yourself be part of the audience experience. Yeah, and for me, it's really hard to enjoy it because I want others to enjoy it. I, you know, and like a special makeup effect. You know, if it's something that I did, it's like, let me know when it's coming up. Pacing back and forth, come back in. <laughs> I'm not watching the movie. I'm watching the audience because you yes. want to see what their response is, and I think that's more important sometimes than anything else. Yeah. Um. Yeah, ultimately, it is. I mean, to tell the truth. Um. You know, it, it ultimately an actual audience reaction means more than any review. It means more than anybody's opinion. It's it's like it's it's there. It's 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 a demonstration of what you actually accomplish. No, I mean it's so hard because you know what I think for special makeup. I remember I did a short film at the Boston Underground Film Festival, and it was some rather disgusting effects that I did. And then afterwards, people were literally running to the bathroom because they were getting physically ill. And to me, I think that sense of doing that, it's better than winning any award because you've impacted someone, you know, even though they might be displacing, you know, whatever, you know, but, uh, might be in a negative way that's hurting their body, but you, you impacted them. You can make someone laugh. If you you can make (laughs) someone puke, if you can make someone feel, then that's the objective. Feel anything. You know what I mean? No, it's true. It's it's one of the it's one of the things I feel is is the thing I miss most in terms of seeing movies in theaters with audiences, and this and it's my two favorite genres are comedy and horror, and they both usually get the most reaction from an audience, and that to me is a big deal. Just getting, I mean, that's you know you can sit there and watch a, a great drama or any other you know many other types of films. And the audience may never actually react audibly or or you have no idea exactly how they're taking it. But with a comedy or a horror film, you know as the film is in is in operation, you know how they're reacting. It's yeah, it's almost like a concert. You know, you're providing the you know and, and you want to see what the reaction is. And if people are standing, I can't believe this shit. Or, you know, just you know, whatever, you know, to get that reaction, I mean it, it's just it's instantaneous. It, it's like theater. You know, because it's it's right there. But, you know, for a movie, you might take maybe a year and then you get it in front of the camera and then you can see the reactions. Yeah, yeah. It's like Horrorween. You know <laughs> what I mean? It's like Horrorween. I want to ask the Horrorween question real quick. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, kid, do you have any fa- uh, any most memorable costumes that you wore? I can't say that I, I necessarily, because to tell the truth, um, I would usually, I mean, when I was a little kid, I used to go with the, the Ben Cooper Halloween costume. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then when I got older, I would like make stuff myself. I went out as a teenage Frankenstein once. Nice. Um, you know, it, it, but I, I also feel like it's like, it was interesting because I, I, I think when we, when you're at a certain age and you're very young and you're getting candy and stuff and it's, oh, wow, this is so much fun. This is great. And then at a certain age, as I started to get older, I sort of started to think, wow, this is really like legalized robbery. We go to people and they give us this stuff, and I come home with a big bag of candy. And uh, and the, and this is one of the things I was going to ask you guys about because I don't even know to what extent that kind of thing even exists anymore. 
I, I know for years, I mean, the, the whole thing with kids being endangered and parents being unwilling to let them go out and Halloween became greatly reduced from what it was when kids were just like allowed to run rampant on the streets Halloween yeah. night all yeah. over the place. And, sure. and to tell the truth, I live in a small town now. I live about 12,000 people. And I thought when I came here, well, surely the kids here must be trick-or-treating. It's so safe and it's so rural. I haven't seen any kids on Halloween. Yeah, we got a, a lot of places have curfews, which I know is kind of a bummer on it. And then, yeah, like I said, it was kind of slowly because of like all the craziness of the world was kind of slowly going down. Right. When COVID came in, it like, I think COVID almost like was the death blow to how, trick-or-treating. I don't see anybody doing it every now and like, I mean, I, I know parents now will do like kids parties and, 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 you know, schools will do events. But, uh, but there was this sense of like wild freedom on Halloween night when you'd be out there and there'd be kids dressed up all over the place and everybody's got a big bucket or, a, or a bag. And, uh, you know, and they, and some people gave out great candy. They do. Oh, they do. And, 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 you know, to jump on what you're saying, I mean, as a product of the early eighties, I loved the fact when I was younger, you know, where you could, you know, walk around, you know, you trick or treat. And it, but Maddie, I think you're right. I mean, nowadays, it definitely has changed where I'm noticing where I live in Dorchester, where the new kids in the block are from, um, you know, a lot of, uh, houses, I think basically kind of, um, or like in the cul-de-sac areas in the South Shore, it's, it's like they might make like a little neighborhood, you know, thing out of it where you don't see so much actual, you know, ringing doorbells, you know. Right, right. There's a new thing called trunk or treating. It's where people gather in like churches and other parking lots and people just kind of have kids. From their different cars. Back in yeah, their so car. Nice. And then the kids walk down a line and every like three feet, they're getting more candy and they get, they walk through it and walk around, and by the end of it, they get a full bag of candy. But, I mean, it may have the same end result, but that's like a bread line. I mean, really, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it, to me, as I said, what I think I really liked about Halloween, aside from all the candy, was simply this, this sense of wild freedom. Yeah, for sure, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I don't think that's there anymore. I don't think that, you know, going out, with a small group of friends and kind of, you know, walking through the cemetery, getting some candy, doing, you know, crazy. And I, and I, think, I think famously the night uh, before Halloween was supposed to be mischief night. Yeah. And and if you think about it, that goes like right in hand. It's like, you know, we're going around extorting people for candy. But before that, we're going to fuck them up. Yeah. All Hallows' Eve. Uh you know, you're right. Almost like that, you know, toilet papering, you know, houses, you know, almost happen like usually the day before, you know, and then they're dealing with the ramifications. Like, all right, we need to get the rest the house ready to, you know, hand out candy. Yeah. yeah. Eggs, yeah, eggs, the bologna, uh, the bologna on the car. I don't know if that was a trick or treat thing or just a, you know, mean thing. I don't know. I remember hearing about I that. I think that's more vindictive to actually fuck up someone's paint job with a piece of bologna than I don't recommend. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I mean, I remember all kinds of pranks, but people rarely did anything like that was serious vandalism. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, you know, the good old days when you could throw a roll of toilet paper and you know how easy it is to clean up, you know, but some people are rather extreme, you know, and it just, I don't get the meanness. I don't get the vindictive nature. I mean, I like when it's the, the goofiness, the fun of it, making yeah. other people laugh instead of trying to cause some sort of a, impact i guess you would say than anything else because it's that socialization that you know makes it you know fun 
Right. Well, I mean, there are kids of a certain age, you know, who are, there's, there's a certain age where you go out and you do things that are questionable, like like vandalism or shit, yeah. where you're just you're <laughs> finding your way in life. Yeah, uh, I, I, I wasn't one of those kids. I mean, by high oh, school, Bill. you know, I like more Bill. No, seriously, I wasn't. I mean, I was one of those kids that would rather walk around the cemetery smoking a joint, you, you know, and just, <laughs> you know, having fun rather than, you know, ringing doorbells. Yeah. Right. Well, a couple of years after I started to stop trick-or-treating, I also found that that was the way to go. <laughs> Billy, you should have an animated cartoon about you trick-or-treating on Halloween, on Halloween. Maybe a claymation. We'll figure it out. Go. You want to finance it? I'm looking for a financier. Well, gee, unfortunately, so am I. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now <laughs> everybody is. Even the apes looking for money. Well, you it's, know? It's, I mean, plus even like to try to you know raise funds yourself, you know, can be such a daunting task. And um, but you know, it's wonderful with the invention now of like Indiegogos and you know crowdfunding because right. you know it, it's changed yeah. up the game so much than trying. I, to I've only said a little bit here or there about the, the spooky sequel, and I've been frequently asked, oh, "Are you going to crowdfund it?" and I would do that as a last resort. That's not my first go-to. I feel like, all right, I am suddenly in a position where this film I made has some reputation that it didn't have previously. So I should be able to just go to certain people, especially companies, film distribution companies, et cetera, and say, all right, I'm, I'm the guy that made Spookies and here's what we want to do. And, you know, and I've already, I'm, I'm talking to Vin- Vinegar Syndrome about it. I'm hoping they can be involved in one way or another because they're starting to do production. Yeah, that's wonderful. I mean, yeah. they're a really good company, you know, on many different levels. They, well, they've really done, uh, you know, they they were in competition with with other companies like Arrow. and, and Yeah, Shell company. Factory, Arrow. Right. Yeah. Like Vinegar Syndrome. I mean, I don't know what happened exactly, but they suddenly started branching off. They're doing publishing. They want to do a Spookies comic book. Very uh, cool. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're, they're really, they're trying to, like, get into as many aspects. Did they make of, an LP of Spookies? Oh, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a vinyl there's record. A- yeah, I've, yeah, been trying, I've been trying to get my hands on one of those for a while. Go, go, go on. I mean, it's it's out there. It's not hard. Yeah, to I know it's out there. Man, yeah. Yeah, it's it was issued by one company, and then it got reissued again by by another company. Okay. I think Bull Moose had it last time we were up there, actually. Yeah, Bull Moose is one of the uh, stores up here that has uh, wonderful physical media, you know, uh, Blu-ray, DVD, you know, and it's it's like, as we mentioned, mentioned earlier, it's wonderful that, you know, there are still businesses, you know, that are you know, uh, generating, um, you know, that type of content and product that people can actually... I'll be make. curious to see what happens with these new Netflix stores. I mean... I, I'm, That's weird, yeah. I'm sure there's going to be some, like, weird attempt to try and recreate, like, the feel of an 80s video business. But at the same time, I mean, you know, are people going to respond to that? Are enough people going to respond to that? It's like, it's almost like Blockbuster versus the mom and stores, you know, because the uh, Blockbuster would have, you know... 50 million copies of like the movie that just came out and they might not have whatever, you know, certain smaller titles, but the mom right. pop stores really went out of the way because they were just getting these amazing bulk. Everything. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I feel in terms of what is available to see, I feel like we're in a golden age in terms of what's, I mean, almost anything that was ever made that exists, somebody wants to get it out there and, and, yeah. and, and be able to sell it to the public. So there was the V there was the VHS mom and pop VHS. Then we had like Blockbuster came in. Netflix it originally killed Blockbuster, right? That was the deal. 
And then they, they were like a rental thing, almost like a red box. I think when they'd they mail just, it to you, they'd mail you. Well, I, I was like big into Netflix for years because I mean, I, they had like almost everything you could want. And, uh, yeah. you know, and, and, and I would, I would always do a quick turnaround. <laughs> so I was seeing lots of movies. Yeah, then Redbox kind of came in and was, I assumed it was hurt, doing a little hurt, because there was a time when Netflix was kind of in a questionable place before they kind of went into the streaming thing. Right, yeah, that's, you know, because the business was like sort of going up and down and people, I think there was a period before streaming really happened where, where because nobody knew when that would become the next big thing that companies were uncertain where to, to place their bets. I mean, I can't even think of a world without Netflix right now. When you think about it, it's such—it's become such a big part of. Our, I'm just amazed that they became such a big producer of movies. Yeah, but that's yeah. where they'll, they'll all go there. You know what I mean? Hulu does that. You know, Peacock does that. Even like Vinegar Syndrome going in that direction. Yeah, eventually. I, well, I think that's ultimately that's better. I mean, keep in mind that back uh, in the uh, the late '40s, the government. Uh, changed the laws and the movie companies who previously owned a lot of the movie theaters yeah. would distribute their own theaters couldn't own theaters and produce movies. So that it was rare. The balance of everything changed. Only one person I can think of who was making movies that had their own theater, fascinating figure, Bob Lippers. And <laughs> is he in the mob? Well, he, Bob Gilbert. He may have well been, but I mean, here's a guy who, who, who owned like a, a theater. But, you know, he also was a filmmaker and he wanted to get his movies out there. And so he was making movies and playing them in his own theaters. And, you know, there weren't many people, you know, in that position. And then he went on to help with, you know, Amicus Films, you know, start over to Hammer Horror. I mean, you know, he's a very fascinating figure in the, the horror spectrum. And uh, Robert Lippert, uh, if you're not familiar with that name, I would definitely say... He's almost he was he was Roger Corman before Roger Corman. Oh really? Yeah. Like it was Roger Corman, Lloyd Kaufman, James Balsamo. <laughs> Our buddy Balsamo. I, 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 should, I should say that I I I, uh, I got contacted by James uh, yeah. like uh, about, I don't know close to a year ago actually. He's very interested in being involved with the spooky sequel. Uh, I'm in one of his movies, his upcoming movies, Robot Dracula. Hell yeah, James dude, yeah. And he, uh, I really liked him and he, you know, I mean, as soon as we get some business and legal things taken care of, I want to bring him into the fundraising effort. And, uh, and I admire what he's done and he and a few other people I've met, uh, you must, uh, have, uh, you must know of Dustin Ferguson. Oh, I know Dustin. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Great guy. And, and even, and they'll even admit, yeah, my movies are like incredibly cheap and they're not the best movies, but they make money and I make a living. And I have fans, and that's a lot to boast of. Yeah, no, for yeah. sure. I always say I, the hardest part is making the living. You know that that's that something. Is a lot the hardest part, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, I think we we dream just to make movies for a living and get paid. But you know, I also work in construction by day, and you know, I make movies on the weekends. And right. some and some people feel like, oh, that's your hobby. It's like, no, that's my passion. Right. So, you know, and I think some people don't understand that. And, uh, well, it's, it's what, it's what you're doing the hard work that the, the world at large will pay you for to do the thing that matters to it. I mean, a lot of people certainly do that. Yeah. And in some situations, it's like, you know, and the goal is always, well, I'll eventually do what I want for a living. And that, but that doesn't always happen. Yeah. But if you really feel the passion and you have to do it, you're going to do it no matter what. Yeah. I mean, you know, you'll always, you know, 
have that zest. You know, you, you never lose of that creative thing. And you'll, if you really want it, then you're going to figure out a way to make it, you know, happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I'm, I'm impressed by guys like, like Dustin and James in terms of like, they've really, they've managed to put together businesses that can continually do this kind of stuff. And there's a few other companies like that, that are, that are doing that. Um, what's his name? Uh, Mark Polonia. Do you know who he is? Uh, I've, I've heard the name. Yeah, yeah. He's, he has a company. He and I think his brother have a company that, that do lots of micro-budget stuff. In fact, they, they came up to this area a while back and contacted me to talk about maybe making a film for them. Uh, and the fact is, I'm not really interested in making a $3,000 film. I don't think it's going to I don't think it's going to satisfy me creatively or uh, pay me very much. You, if you're, you, it's got to be a passion project if you're making it. For yeah, exactly. I mean, you got to exactly. be fueled by right. love for it, yeah. Trying to think and, of those brothers. Uh, and I have a couple of small projects that I, I also am putting together simultaneous with putting together plans for the spooky sequel. So, I mean, I I think at all kinds of different levels. I mean, just like my partner Tom used to basically, you know, try to come up with ideas that would cost as little as possible. He once shot part of a movie where about 10 minutes of it took place during a blackout. So, creative. So creative. Literally, it was literally yeah. darkness. Yeah, the yeah, darkness on darkness. <laughs> wow. Knows? You know? The Mahal brothers, I think. Alex <laughs> works with the Mahal brothers a lot, I think. Yeah, but those yeah. guys fundraise their own movies. They make their own product. Yeah, yeah and I, I've got fans all the time asking me to be part of their, their micro-budget movie, which I'm glad to do. You like doing um, you doing cameos? You okay? You like doing cameos? And I I, I have I mean I'm well I'm in uh, James Balsamo's Robot Dracula in a scene with Malcolm McDowell. Very cool. Oh yeah. Right? And, that, and that's and, and you know basically which means I shot I shot a reaction shot and, and sent some dialogue as he instructed for a scene that will was shot that will be cut in. But yeah, yeah. the moment I said you'll be in a scene with Malcolm McDowell, I said well, of course I'll do it. That's classic. Yeah, I think we've all. I think everybody on this in, in, in on these four screens have been in a James Balsamo picture. Yeah, and I, I uh, and to tell the truth, I've only seen a couple of his films, but I was I was pretty They're impressed. With him. They're a lot of fun. He makes a real effort to be entertaining. It's not like he's trying to make, absolutely. It's not like he's trying to make a much more expensive movie for a very small budget. It's more like he's making a movie of the sort that you probably wouldn't spend more money on. This. Yeah, but I, I love that P.T. Barnum element that he has. I mean, he's a real showman when he goes to these conventions and. We, I mean, shit. I mean, it's been like all close to ten years, I think, since we worked with him. And right, right. And so, I mean, one of the best people with fans for sure. Yeah, and and you know, it was fun because we didn't didn't made a movie uh, called Groundhog with him. And I remember we were talking. We got so animated, and we started talking about Gremlins two and the whole power ties. Mm-hmm. And in and, and that scene, basically, come out came out, and he's like, "Don't touch my power tie." Yeah, and so it's funny seeing you know how things can evolve. I get on set, you know, where you, you see you know the you know um, how how actors do their thing, especially when they're entertainers, you know. And you know, Balsamo is definitely cut from that cloth. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's uh, he's uh, I've, I've seen I've, I you know I'm on his um, his Facebook. Uh, he you know I, I see his posts and he. He makes a point of every photograph that's taken of him. He's got this big, beaming, smiling, wide-eyed face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what? I'll tell you something. Um, I discovered, and I think I know part of the reason he does that, it's the same reason, if you've ever noticed, and this only started in the past 10 years, 
every time there's a picture of Kevin Smith, his eyes are like as wide as, as you can imagine them being, right? Yeah. So, you know what I'm talking about? No, I, I totally. I, get, get I think he, he did that because I know I found out that after having done enough podcasts, having, you know, had pictures taken, etc., that my eyes seem like they're half closed so much of the time that if somebody's got a camera on me, I better have my eyes open. Yeah. Alex took a picture of me over the weekend and I've gotten over 75, you know, likes and everything. I look like I'm half asleep and I'm holding right. the boom. And part of me feels like I wish I opened my eyes a little more, but you know, sometimes when you're, when you're out there, if you have that animatedness, you know, in that look, I mean, you know, kind of the first person I noticed to do that maybe about 20, 30 years ago, as we, and we, as we talked about him, ridiculous as he is, is, uh, Lloyd, where he's just kind of like this wackiness that he likes to right, emulate. Right. But, you know, if you're taking a picture, then it's a still. So you might not get that. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think it's interesting how certain filmmakers will almost try to like, um, uh, own something, try to put a little stamp on something about how they, might look, you know, putting themselves out there or working you know. Lloyd a lot. He, he like came up through trauma. You know what I mean? I think there's definitely a bit of Lloyd in him. You know what I mean? For sure. Well, I think Balsamo definitely kind of grabbed some of that stuff. Yeah. That yeah. And I, and I think also, I mean, what happened with Lloyd is that trauma became sort of like an institution in itself and people, you know, and, and, and there was the trauma style and, and people yeah. related to that. And, uh, it was only after a certain number of years that he started to come out and be, become more of a public personality. Back yeah. back in the eighties, and I don't know, I don't know when that began, but I mean, he was he was not he was more he was really more the the guy be you know the 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 guy behind the producing end of things at Troma. He he wasn't really directing and making films until you know gradually that's something he also became known for. You can yeah. uh, you can definitely look at old videos with Lloyd too, and like there's a point in the nineties when he kind of really became animated probably around the cartoon time you know what i mean but like he, like there's a morton downey jr interview with him that's really famous where he's just getting like a bunch of shit but he's just like he's he's not zany he's not a zany lloyd he's very kind of i think that only kind of kicked off in the 90s you know probably maybe more, more like the more he was put in front of a camera he knew he had to ham it up. I, I think he's, I think he just realized how much fun it would be to just like sort of let go and ham it up. Have fun that's with what it. We're, that's yeah. why it's Uncle Lloyd. I mean, you look at Michael Harris, who I've met Michael Harris. We went there in, uh, years ago and I met Michael Harris and he's just like a normal dude. But like Lloyd <laughs> definitely turns it like cranks the fucking cranks it up. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. I'm surprised Charlie Band never got like a real trademark, you know, kind of picture thing. Cause uh, to me, it, it was, he was all about dude, 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 because he was just the guy that was always saying, I got this, this big idea. It's going to be amazing. And I always thought like he didn't, you know, kind of, but you know, well, Lloyd he's, has his thing. he's still going strong. Oh, he's totally. talking about, he's coming out. Um, you know, and he's a guy, and he sort of, for a couple of years, I didn't, I, he didn't, he seemed to be inactive and then he came back as strong as ever. Yeah, because, well, I remember when he was doing his road show when he was in that lull. And, you know, this is before streaming. You know, uh, Paramount, I think, dropped the deal with him, unfortunately, and he had to try to figure out how to maintain. But, you know, streaming has definitely been beneficial for, you know, yeah. Full Moon and Trauma and, you know, these other folks that are, that have this, uh, you know, uh, 
content body of work that you know they can show you know through their sites yeah well my goodness well frank i i we all appreciate you coming on i feel like we've kept you for like four hours here. well actually you've kept you for about three hours and yeah, it's probably so we, almost three hours but it's it's one of the longer podcasts that i've done but i've had a good day fun we have, well, we appreciate that you know we're having a lot of fun with you you know what i mean but and, and look as i said i'm uh, I'm hoping to get the, the the ball really rolling on looking for funding for the spooky stuff follow up. Um, and I may have mentioned this when I talked to you guys previously, but I'm I'm looking to bring fans into it in whatever way I can. I've got so many. I mean, I would love to contribute. Love to be a part. Yeah, we we all do. Oh, I would like to have as many people on a crew that were just fans of the genre that you know knew my movies. If possible, I just feel it would put everybody on the same page and really just focus things. For sure, I love the. I know, I'm sure all three of us would love to be a part of it. Even the ape, get the ape in there. Ape's got his own podcast. Well, you I need to come out with share. Alex, are you ever going to show Frank your face? Considering you're also an actor. Face, <laughs> yeah. Ah! yeah. Ah! I'm staring him without the mask. Hey, we all do. I gotta say, I commit to a part. I committed for no, the. Oh, you do, but look at so that handsome man. You shaved. I'm happy. We'll just robe for the be- the big ending. Oh, well, that mask probably, probably would have gotten a lot hotter with it with a beard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's bearded up. Well, fantastic. You know what I mean? Here we are. Well, thanks for having me. Let me give me some clue when you're gonna uh, put this, this up. So this will be airing Halloween night. Right now, as we speak on this video, it's Halloween. Night. Yeah. Where is most? Of your, where is most of your stuff? On Boombastic Media YouTube. Okay, Can you send me a link. I sure will. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I, I had fun, and uh, you know, have me back again soon. And. You know, keep an eye. I'll be posting about, you know, progress with the, with the Spookies follow-up very uh, soon. I, uh, you know, I'm sort of, it's weird because I have had people tell me, oh, there's no doubt you'll be able to get money for a spooky sequel. And I sort of feel that way. But at the same time, I'm so cynical. I'm so used to being side, you know, sidetracked and, and turned down and having doors slammed in my face. I'm just very cautious. You know, yeah. even just before this interview, I had I get a sudden message on Facebook saying, "Frank, do you know where we can get talk to somebody about getting the rights to make a spooky sequel?" Ah. And I said, "Well, maybe you should talk to me first. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we'd, we'd, de- we'd love to promote it and help out with it in any way we can, man. That'd be great. I'd love to see. Yeah. It. Yeah. Put it this way, you got three people to help you out. The reason That's I feel compelled to bring fans into it is that they've. They helped to turn things around for me just in terms of how I felt about the whole experience and, and, and what's happened since. And, and I'm very grateful for that. And I've expressed that frequently. But I also, you know, I just, as I said, to be able to do a project where everybody's just sort of pulling for the project to begin with instead of walking in just because somebody decided to give them a movie job. Yeah. Um, I, I, I really, I would love to be in a work situation like that. It's yeah. wonderful what it's made for the fans and made by the fans because well, it, the is, I mean I want my goal with the film is I want to I want to make the I just want to make the fans happier than they can believe yeah and I'm aiming really high and I admit that I'm trying to make uh, a film that's going to make up for every movie I didn't get to make in the past twenty or more years yeah yeah no but I definitely want to be in contact I love to contribute like a special makeup. Yeah, look, Please, any any of you feel free to contact me. I'm I'm oh, always yeah. uh, 
pretty uh, open to that. Um, I'm just, you know, I, 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 w- I need a full staff, and I wish I had one, but I hope to have one sometime in the near future. Uh, so uh, I've got a partner who's working with me. I've got, uh, you know, a few other people who want to, you know, who have talked about coming in already. Uh, I'm incredibly optimistic. I feel... <clears throat> I feel the enthusiasm that I had at 19, so you know, when I first started doing film stuff. Well, if you need over 200 feet of intestines, right here. There you go. He'll cut it out of himself personally. Really? Oh. Um, <laughs> made it for these guys. I was going to start this hot dog business. <laughs> you know, perfect. All right. Well, Frank, anyway, you have a great guys, time. thank you so much, and I, I good luck to all of you, and hopefully we'll talk. We'll definitely be in touch again. We'll have you back on, and we'll talk about the Spookies, too, getting some, you know. Fantastic. You know? Thank you so much, Frank, for your time. Thank you thank so much. You. Take care, guys. You too. Bye. Have a good night. Bye. Yeah. And ladies and gentlemen, the great Frank Farrell has left the building. Frank is great, dude. Always a pleasure. We had him on the Boombasta cast, I think, in season one, I think. Or the season yeah, well, season with guests. Three, maybe? Yeah, the first season with guests. I mean, technically, I think that was seat or the C five It was season maybe three or four. Three. Season okay. three was the first time we had guests. Yeah. Always a pleasure. See, we started late. We didn't want to rush into things. We were way too we were mature. Mature as a podcast, you know. We're still recording. Um, yeah, yeah, we're still recording, Bill. You shouldn't take that piss. <laughs> but you shouldn't take the pee knuckle out. Um, <laughs> like, the pee, the pee knuckle is for, for after hours. Oh my! Oh my! Well, Billy, thanks for joining us. You know the. You know, we got the film going on right now, so you know we did it this weekend. We got next weekend. We're doing it. Um, yeah, we break it into weekends because we're cool like that. And, uh, yeah, Doogie, you know, we wanted to bring, bring y'all a little something. Maybe there might be a taste. It's a little early in the game. Maybe, maybe the, the editor might show something. Who knows these things? Nobody ever knows for sure. Who's editing this? I don't know, but Buddy Butterfugo's directing this episode, so we'll talk to him about it. But yeah, so we got. You know, we got a new horror flick out on, you know, on the horizon coming your way. Everything's coming, going, coming together really nice. You know, looking beautiful, sounding great. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's been a little bit since we did a feature, you know what I mean? It's been pushing down on sometimes, but jumping back into it, it's like taking like a duck to water, riding a bike. You know what I mean? Got a great so check out this newest boombastic venture coming at you. Hi, hey, hi, hey. So there's your trick or treat for the evening. You know what I mean? Anybody want to say anything in closing to the folks at home that might be listening? Happy Halloween, everyone. Happy Halloween. Halloween. More like happy Halloween up in this mo truck. Happy Halloween. In this Halloween's movie, ladies and gentlemen, spooky. Why? That's it's, it's <laughs> a little closer towards you. There you go. There it is. There it is. There's spookies. You got the glorious VHS, and of course the Vinegar <laughs> Syndrome Blu-ray, which was released. You know, check it out on Amazon. I believe you can get your hands on this for like twenty one, twenty two bucks. I think it goes up and down, but you know, check it every couple of days if you want to catch the. Keep in mind, an award winning. The uh, title is that. Okay. Rondo 
winner, the unmaking of Spookies, just as amazing as the movie itself. It's on there. I can't you know. say enough good things about that Vinegar Syndrome on Blu-ray. You owe it to yourself to get that Vinegar Syndrome on Blu-ray. And get the VHS of the 1986 Delirium Awards. Winner of the Delirium Awards! Ah! Ladies and gentlemen, we always love you. Thanks for listening. We hope you have a happy and safe Halloween this year. I uh, will catch you all on the next episode of Boom Cast, as well as the Christmas episode popping off in a couple months. Thankful for y'all. Billy, always a pleasure. Alexander. Always a pleasure, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime, Alexander. Always a pleasure. Honor. And all I have to say is sometimes you never know what you're going to get in your bag on Halloween. Oh, yeah. See y'all. Next Halloween, don't let the ghouls get you or the spookies neither. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.